The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast with no advertising. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. The DVD used was provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Stay tuned at the end to find out how you can support the podcast. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. It was the dawn of 1979. The three TV networks launch an insane 36 new series at mid-season in the wake of their fall failures. Yes, there were the much maligned failures such as Hello Larry and Super Train. But there were a couple of hits that arose out of America's late 1970s fascination with CBs, truckers, and anything Southern. NBC's hit series BJ and the Bear with Greg Evigan was a lighthearted and romanticized look at the itinerant life of BJ McKay, a trucker that lived out of his Kenworth K100 sleeper cab semi, along with Bear, his pet chimpanzee. BJ and the Bear gave rise to the spin-off series The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo the title character referring to that corrupt Georgian rural lawman that served as a repeated thorn in BJ's side, but dialed way back from the level of sex trafficking evil he originally displayed on the BJ and the Bear pilot movie. Lobo was played by Claude Akins, who himself had been friendly trucker Sonny on 1974's Moving On. The Sheriff Lobo series was an obvious attempt by NBC to copy the success of yet another January 1979 mid-season CBS series. The Dukes of Hazard featured cousins Bo and Luke Duke and their adventures as two good old boys in rural Georgia. The activities of the Duke boys often run afoul of corrupt but mostly harmless local sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane 
in the pocket of crooked county commissioner Boss Hogg. Amid the popularity of TV shows along these themes, as well as a major motion picture called Urban Cowboy in production, an associated rise in the popularity of country western music, as well as a Pasadena, Texas honky-tonk called Gillies coming into the national spotlight, CBS finally decided to take a certain sharp-tongued southern red-headed waitress from a successful sitcom now in its fourth season and give her a Texas-based spin-off series. But before we take a look at Flo, let's first look at the series from which the character originated. The Forgotten TV Era can give us no shortage of examples of series adapted from motion pictures where the roles were recast with new actors. But for every successful TV adaptation that eclipsed the film from which it originated, a dozen less successful examples can be shown where the spin-off was short-lived or largely forgotten today. However, one well-remembered CBS sitcom that started its run in the mid-70s was indeed an adaptation of a successful 1974 motion picture. With the longevity of the series and the characters as portrayed by the new actors, made many forget it was ever based on a previous film. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Alice! Open that door! Alice! Alice! Alice doesn't live here anymore. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Alice doesn't live any of those places anymore because when they start closing in, Alice hits the highway. Ellen Burstyn, Chris Christopherson, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Rated PG. Released in December 1974, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore was written by Robert Getchell, his first produced screenplay, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Ellen Burstyn starred as 35-year-old Alice Hyatt, who, along with her preteen son, Tommy, lives a less-than-fulfilling life with her emotionally distant husband, Donald, in Socorro, New Mexico. When Donald is suddenly killed on the job in a car accident, she decides to pack up the station wagon and move back to her childhood hometown of Monterey, California, to resume her youthful dream of being a singer. Along the way, she takes a job as a bar singer in Phoenix, and gets sidetracked with a brief relationship with Ben, a younger man who turns out not only to be married, but abusive. Escaping Phoenix for Tucson, Alice takes a waitressing job at Mel and Ruby's Cafe to earn money. There, she works for the irascible but good-hearted Mel and eventually befriends her new co-workers, the sharp-tongued and salty Flo and the perennially confused Vera. Cafe regular David, a divorced local rancher played by Chris Christopherson, takes a liking to both Alice and Tommy. Meanwhile, Tommy has started hanging around with the slightly older Audrey, a largely unsupervised girl whose drinking and shoplifting ways were not the best influence on him. Eventually, Alice and Tommy decide they don't need to continue to Monterey deciding she can pursue her ambition of being a singer as well as continue seeing David there in Tucson. Released in Los Angeles for a one-week engagement in December 1974, specifically for Academy Award consideration, the film was shown at the Avco Center Cinema, and Academy members were admitted free. 
Ellen Burstyn was nominated for the second year in a row, and this time won the Academy Award for Best Actress. Diane Ladd was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her role of Flo, and Robert Getchell for Best Original Screenplay. But it was a tough year, with Chinatown, Murder on the Orient Express, The Godfather Part II, and Lenny among the competition. Although neither Ladd nor Getchell took home an Oscar, they both won BAFTA awards for those categories. The film's honest and sincere characterizations, especially by Burston and 12-year-old Alfred Lutter III as Tommy, was used in the film's marketing with several different TV spots. Quit it, Mom. Quit it, Mom. You better stop. That's why Alice doesn't live here anymore. Lutter was a newcomer to acting and had been selected from over 300 boys auditioning for the role. Improvisations by both Burston and Lutter were used by Scorsese in the film, which included the gorilla story that Lutter had repeatedly told during rehearsals. The supporting actors of Harvey Keitel, Chris Christopherson, Vic Tabak, Valerie Curtin, and Jodie Foster all contributed to the quality and tone of the film as did the use of popular songs of the time, heard as diegetic music coming out of the car radio or Tommy's record player. The locations used also gave the film a gritty, slice-of-life flavor, as much of the film was shot on location in Tucson, Arizona, where real local diners, motels, and bars were used for filming. The Monterey Dining Room sign seen in the final shot as Alice and Tommy walked down Speedway Boulevard and decided they didn't need to go to Monterey after all was said to have been a happy accident of filming. The film's critical success fueled the attendance for a wider release in early summer of 1975, which is when general audiences finally saw the film. Roger Ebert ended up including it as number three of the best films he saw in 1975. The tagline used in print marketing was, A movie for everyone who has ever dreamed of a second chance. Diane Ladd had a 20-year career under her belt by this time, having appeared on stage and screen since the mid-1950s. In 1969's The Reavers and the CBS daytime soap The Secret Storm. Ladd's depiction of flirty and smart-mouthed waitress Flo drew from character elements of people from her past, such as some of the down-home sayings she absorbed from family members growing up in Mississippi. One of Flo's phrases, which seems fairly tame today, was, You can kiss me where the sun don't shine. But some of Flo's insults hurled at Mel, while not profanity per se, were quite raunchy. Prompted by the press to comment, Flo doesn't really swear. Her outbursts are surface jargon, a way to reach people. Her turn in the Alice film gave her name recognition and prompted NBC to sign her to act in a string of TV projects. Following the critical and audience success of the Alice film, its producer, David Suskind, optioned the script for TV development with the concept of adapting the story into a sitcom. Suskind had been a producer for the stage and moved over to television in the mid-1950s, working on several of the Playhouse-style shows of that era, as well as a slew of TV movies into the 1970s. 
Alice writer Robert Getchell was tapped to adapt his own story into one that would work in a 30-minute sitcom format. A pilot was written, and Ellen Burstyn was contacted regarding the possibility of returning to the character, but she chose not to. CBS expressed interest, but didn't seem completely sold on the concept at first. Adapting a film into a television sitcom was tricky business. CBS had found success with MASH, but other adaptations had seen failure. ABC's Paper Moon replaced Tatum O'Neill with a fresh-faced Jodie Foster, but her version of Addie Prey wasn't allowed to smoke, and her use of profanity was dialed back to that of an occasional damn. She did once utter a son of a bitch in an episode, but the language was edited before it aired. ABC had also incredibly attempted a TV version of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, the provocative 1969 film. By necessity, the sitcom featuring Robert Urich, Ann Archer, David Spielberg, and Anita Gillette was far tamer than the film, but a nervous ABC still pulled the pilot episode, slotted to air as the third in the series, that would have shown viewers a skinny-dipping scene and replaced it with another episode. The show was pulled altogether after seven airings. Thus, skill was needed on the part of writers when adapting films for television to set a storytelling tone both accessible for viewers and acceptable for TV standards. CBS was thus cautious about an Alice adaptation and nearly passed on it altogether. Alan Shane, then head of casting at CBS, recalled a conversation with a West Coast division head of the network about actress Linda Lavin. Lavin had been under contract with the network, but that arrangement had entered its final week. In a 2017 interview, Shane recalled his conversation with the West Coast executive. Is there anything we have for her? He asked. I always read all the scripts that were submitted as potential series, and one I liked had been rejected by the big bosses. I think Alice would be perfect for her, I said. He replied, We turned that down. It's not funny. You put Linda Lavin in it, and it will be funny, I said. Well, if you can persuade New York to do a pilot, he replied, I'll go along with it. I got on the phone and sold as hard as I could, and finally, they decided to take a chance. Getchell's Alice pilot changed or deleted altogether several elements present in the film. Alice and Tommy were now from New Jersey and not Socorro. The destination of Monterey was altered to Hollywood. The location of Alice's workplace was changed from Tucson to Phoenix. The name of the restaurant was changed from Mel and Ruby's Cafe to Mel's Diner. And the circumstances of Alice and Tommy's arrival was simplified to that of the family station wagon breaking down there and eliminating Alice's dalliance with the abusive bin. When it came to casting the pilot, in addition to Linda Lavin in the title role, Vic Tabak reprised his role of Mel, now given the last name of Sharples, and Alfred Lutter returned as Tommy. With Diane Ladd under contract at NBC and Valerie Curtin committed to an unnamed Larry Gelbart pilot for a series that became Three's Company, other actresses were auditioned for the role of Flo and Vera. Beth Howland was selected to be the new Vera. This would be her first regular series role, having appeared as a TV guest actress a handful of times. Alabaman stage and screen actress Polly Holiday, 
fresh off the set of All the President's Men, where she had played the Miami secretary who stalled Carl Bernstein, was one of those attending the New York audition for the role of Flo, as she told Jerry Buck in a 1977 interview. The pilot described her only as a brassy, bleached blonde, which I'm not. I guess what caught their attention was that I had the only real southern accent they'd heard that day. It also didn't hurt that none other than Alan Shane was in her corner and recommended her for the role. The pilot, simply titled Alice, featured a theme song, There's a New Girl in Town, written by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, composed by David Shire, and sung by Lavin herself. She would end up singing a new rendition of the song every season, and an alternate version of her scatting the melody would be used over the closing credits of series episodes. The version of the opening scene in the pilot was that of Alice and Tommy's interactions with each other, shopping and doing touristy Arizonan activities. Polly Holiday's flow had the first word of dialogue, and her presence was immediately known, with what would become her catchphrase, Kiss My Grits, a TV version of You Can Kiss Me Where the Sun Don't Shine, being used in the first few minutes. The storyline of the pilot involved recently hired widowed single mother Alice Hyatt working as a waitress at Mel's Diner, being romantically pursued by a younger man played by Dennis Dugan. Alice isn't interested until he claims to be a talent agent. The pilot carried over the general backstory and characters from the film while establishing the characterizations and interactions between the new actors we ended up getting in the series. Howland's Vera was klutzy yet eager. Tayback's Mel was now a primary character as opposed to the minor role in the film and was quick with a stoic to any waitress who got on his nerves. Holiday's flow delivered wisecracks that were more sly and suggestive than outright raunch. Following the pilot, studio and network executives felt Alfred Lutter, who was 14 and had clearly aged since the film, was now too old for the role of Tommy and requested that the role be recast. Unfortunate for Lutter, but probably a wise choice for a sitcom that could run several years. Vic Tabak's son Christopher was considered but the part went to newcomer Philip McKeon, whose family moved from New York to Southern California after he was cast in the series. Eleven years old when joining the cast, he was 20 by the end of the series, and the tallest cast member at six foot three, towering a full head of height over TV mom Linda Lavin. The opening segment was reshot, now visually telling the backstory of Alice and Tommy's road trip the station wagon breakdown, finding a one-bedroom apartment, and Alice taking the job at Mel's Diner. Although a series was now a go, Robert Getchell and David Susskind were only involved in the pilot, and series episodes were handled by other writers and producers. That first season experienced some rough times, with the cast even concerned whether or not the show would continue. But CBS stuck with the series, going through four sets of producers during season one, until the series direction was finally brought back on track in its second season by new production team Madeline Davis and Bob Carroll Jr. Alice was part of CBS's strong Sunday night lineup for nearly all of its incredible nine-season run. 
Episodes would usually take place at the diner or at Alice and Tommy's modest apartment, where Tommy was given his own room and Alice slept on the fold-out sofa in the living room. Alice's career ambition of being a singer was often a topic, as was her love of Robert Goulet, and occasionally she would take on a male persona named Sam Butler to get the crew out of a sticky situation. The criticism of Mel's cooking was often the topic of jokes, and his chili was used as a plot point in several episodes. Fans who wrote into the show were actually sent a recipe card with instructions on how to make it. Although it cops out on giving us his secret mix of spices and simply says to use chili seasoning mix. As Philip McKeon aged, Tommy was given additional storylines. He fell in love, entered high school, became a varsity basketball player, attended college, dealt with alcohol abuse, and started working at the diner. Guest stars were common and often played themselves. Art Carney, Dinah Shore, George Burns, Telly Savalas, Robert Goulet, and Jerry Reed all showed up at Mel's Diner. Popular place for a dive cafe in Phoenix. The popularity of the Alice series soared, and its depiction of a single woman in the workplace made her a hero to working-class women in particular. Although a comedy, several episodes effectively dealt with workers' rights, including topics like the gender pay gap and wage theft. Lavin was invited to speak at women's conferences and, during the summer 1980 actor's strike, spoke in Washington, D.C. on behalf of working women everywhere. I hope all the Alices of the world who are working unprotected and unaware of their rights are listening. Alice was also popular in reruns, entering syndication in the fall of 1982 before the series had even finished its initial network run. I recall occasionally watching the show on Sundays during its original airings, but remember it most from those weekday mornings after breakfast in the mid-1980s. For an incredible deep dive on the Alice series, including complete character breakdowns, histories of actors and crew, an episode guide, a look at the world of Alice, a consideration of the Alice film, the real story of Mel's Diner, flubs, bloopers, and more, check out the book Alice, Life Behind the Counter in Mel's Greasy Spoon by Barry M. Putt, Jr., which was invaluable in preparing the background material on the Alice film and series. With that background established, let's now focus on the character of Flo. Even in the early problematic days of Alice, Flo was quickly becoming an audience favorite and the breakout character of the series. And backstage, there were repeated rumors of behind-the-scenes friction between Linda Lavin and Polly Holiday resulting from this. Press and tabloid articles repeatedly hinted at a feud between the actresses, and sly, non-committal statements from Alice producers when asked about this didn't help matters. Polly Holiday once commented regarding the rumored feud, I just can't get into all that, but I will say that all the stories that have appeared in the papers are not true. There was even one story that Linda had me thrown off the show, and that's not true at all. Alice superfan David Barry Plunkett, who probably was the foremost expert on the series and befriended Lavin as well as Phil McKeon over the years, also insisted there was no such hostility between the two actresses. 
Holiday's version of Flo had a rounded-out backstory, courtesy of the actress herself. Once cast in the role, she began filling out details of the character, writing a five-page bio. She decided Flo's first husband was a stock car driver. The second would never be mentioned. Her third was a traveling Bible salesman that she hailed from a place called Cowtown, Texas, that Flo lived in a trailer, and other details that ended up being used and making it into the show. Flo also now had a last name, Castleberry. Notable episodes of Alice featuring Flo included Season 1, Episode 8, Big Daddy Dawson's Coming where Flo considers remarrying first husband Big Daddy Dawson until she recalls the reason they got divorced. In Season 1, Episode 20, The Odd Couple, Flo's trailer is stolen, and she moves in with Alice, where their conflicting lifestyles drive Alice crazy. Season 2's A Semi-Merry Christmas. Mel drives the waitresses and Tommy to Colorado Springs to see a white Christmas. When they get stuck in the snow, it's Tommy and Flo on the CB radio to the rescue. In Season 3's What Happened to the Class of 78, having dropped out of school, talk of high school reunions spurs Flo to attend night school to obtain her GED at the encouragement of Alice. In Season 3's The Fourth Time Around, Flo gets engaged to Mel's brother Al for a short romantic relationship. At the altar, she realizes she's not ready for another marriage, only the honeymoon. In the season three finale, Flo finds her father. Flo's father walks into the diner after nearly a 30-year absence, and at the prompting of Alice, the two make amends. Forrest Tucker establishes the role of Edsel Jarvis Castleberry that would make a later return. Season four's Good Buddy Flo was the first show of 1980, as Alice entered its final few episodes with Polly Holiday, about to leave for her own spin-off series. Flo takes up with a trucker boyfriend, and she learns he has a female driving partner. This leads to Alice teaching Flo how to drive truck, which leads to disaster. The studio audience is shocked when a huge practical stunt is performed on stage, when Polly Holiday drives an actual international semi-truck into the entrance of the Mel's Diner set. Holiday had practiced driving the truck around the studio lot ahead of filming, and the studio crew had installed a breakaway version of the diner entrance. The episode remains a fan favorite. In the 18th episode of Season 4, Flo's Farewell, Flo shows up at the diner announcing she had been offered a job as head hostess from a wealthy Houston restaurateur. Not having a car to tow her trailer to Texas, the truckers pool money and buy her one. This episode sets up the spin-off series, Flow, which premiered the following month. On Alice, Holiday is replaced the following week with none other than Diane Ladd, now playing new character Belle Dupree from Mississippi, cleverly introduced as someone who had worked at Mel's Diner years ago. Although Ladd won a Golden Globe for this role on Alice, she chose to leave the show in the middle of Season 5. Celia Weston was then brought in to play new waitress Jolene Honeycutt for the remainder of the series. The background, development, and casting of the Flow series will be fully covered in the behind-the-scenes segment.
Let's now look at the all-new cast of characters. Jeffrey Lewis as Earl Tucker, bartender at Flo's Yellow Rose. A leftover employee from the previous ownership, Earl also co-owns a ranch and sometimes works as a ranch hand branding cattle. He's often ready with a senorita and other incorrectly pronounced Spanish words. Sudi Bond as Mama Castleberry, mother of Flo and Fran. Mama has lived her whole life in Cowtown and has been alone since her husband left the family over 25 years ago. She occasionally quotes scripture to keep Flo in line. Lucy Lee Flippin as Fran, Flo's uptight and proper younger sister, about as opposite from Flo as you could get. Fran works at the DMV and has been engaged to Wendell Tubbs of Tubbs Seed and Grain for 12 years. Joyce Boulafont as Miriam Willoughby, Flo's childhood friend who she hires as bookkeeper and waitress at the bar. Stephen Keep as Les Kincaid, chain-smoking bar pianist and man of the world that seems to have been everywhere and seems to know something about everything. Jim B. Baker as Farley Waters, local banker and mortgage holder of Flo's Yellow Rose. Always working some investment scheme or another, usually involving someone of foreign descent whose name he pronounces badly. Leo Burmester as Randy Stumphill, 21-year-old mechanic at the service station across the street and bar regular. Flo hit the CBS airwaves on March 24, 1980. Episode 1 Homecoming. Flo is on her way to a hostess job at a restaurant in Houston and is stopping to see family in her hometown of Cowtown in Tarrant County, Texas. In her Mustang convertible with her travel trailer in tow, she has a flat tire and pulls up to a service station. Leaving to make a phone call, she happens to walk into an old roadhouse bar across the street and realizes it was the Prairie Dog Saloon she used to frequent in her younger days. With her tire repaired, she has dinner with family and reconnects with her mama, sister Fran, and best friend Miriam. Taking the gang to the Prairie Dog, they hang out with piano player Les and bartender Earl. When the current owner, Farley, comes in complaining about the bar and looking to sell, Miriam suggests Flo buy it. When Farley keeps going down on the price and accepting her trailer as collateral instead of a down payment, Farley sells Flo the bar, carrying the note for $16,500. Initially reluctant to work for a woman, Earl is convinced by Flo to stay on. But between expenses for Leon the Neon Sign Guy and the plumbing and electrical repairs, Earl soon earns a kiss my grits. Everything gets worked out, though, and the bar regulars show up, and soon the neon sign is ready to hang, announcing Flo's Yellow Rose. Guest starring James Cromwell as Leon and bar regulars George Buck Flower as Roy, Gordon Hurst as Tyler, and Mickey Jones as Chester. Directed by the accomplished Mark Daniels, who helmed all episodes of the first season. An interesting tidbit on Flo's catchphrase, although Kiss My Grits was uttered in nearly every episode of Alice, sometimes more than once, it wouldn't be until the next season before we heard it again on Flo. The following week, we have a proper series opening theme. <laughs> Rowdy redhead heading for the big time. Looking like a Texas sequin star. 
Making eyes at every tight jean to cowboy Sassing good old boys around the bar Flows, yellow rose Flashing neon every trucker knows The door is always open and the beer is always cold It flows, yellow rose Flows, yellow rose an old rival shows up to the Yellow Rose to even a long-standing score with Earl for stealing his girl 17 years ago. When he turns out to now be a large, muscular sailor, Flo steps in to prevent a showdown at the Yellow Rose. Guest starring Terry Wills as Fran's sometimes seen fiancé Wendell Tubbs and Ben Davidson as Bad Joe Shaw. In Happy Birthday, Mama, Flo and Fran host a surprise Hawaiian-themed birthday party for Mama Castleberry at the Yellow Rose. But why is Mama depressed? It's just not a party without her friend Harold, and Flo and the gang take off for the nearby old folks' home to find him. Guest-starring longtime actors Henry Jones as Harold, Amzie Strickland as Betty, and Georgia Schmidt as Inez. Yes, he's here, drinking beer and carousing. When Flo's sister lends a hand, there's a rip-roaring riot at Flo's Yellow Rose. It's an outrageous Monday night. The following week, when Fran quits her job at the DMV, Mama strong-arms Flo into hiring her at the bar. When she virtually takes over the place with her extreme micromanagement and disrupts bar operations, it has Flo saying, Take my sister, please. This was a great episode for Lucy Lee Flippin to broaden out the Fran character. Fran's antics trigger a choreographed nearly two-minute bar fight involving most of the patrons, complete with practical special effects, which end only when Flo fires her pistol. Seven stuntmen are featured in the end credits for this sequence. We also finally see the inside of Flo's trailer on this series and her bedroom, which is really just a bed at the rear of the trailer and not a separate room. A minor plot point with Fran carding Randy and his girlfriend recalls the drinking age in Texas in 1980. In 1973, Texas lowered the drinking age to 18, which was in effect when this episode was videotaped. The following year, however, the age was raised to 19, until President Reagan used his federal power to override individual states' minimum legal drinking ages in 1986, raising it to 21. In Episode 5, when Farley chokes on his food, piano player Les steps in with the Heimlich maneuver and becomes the hero of Flo's Yellow Rose. But when the radio station comes calling, the secretive Les skips out rather than receive the attention. Later, he tells his story to the gang and walks out of the bar with cigarette and overcoat slung over his shoulder, seeming to invoke Humphrey Bogart. A pre-Freddy Robert England is seen early in this episode, along with character actors Hap Lawrence and Marty Zagan. This episode is a favorite of writer Bob Isles, as it digs more into the character of Les. The Heimlich Maneuver was quite new at the time. It had only been formally introduced in 1975 medical journals. Dr. Henry Heimlich, who pioneered the maneuver, claimed to have rescued a choking victim for the first time, using it in 2016 at age 96. However, the BBC reports an earlier 2003 incident when he was 83. 
Most listeners of this podcast probably grew up learning the Heimlich Maneuver was the best practice for saving a choking victim. The truth about the Heimlich Maneuver is a lot more complicated. It turns out Dr. Heimlich spent years attempting to discredit back blows, the prior method used, denouncing them as death blows. The current medical consensus is that there is no valid scientific evidence to prove that back blows are any better or worse than the Heimlich Maneuver which has been relabeled as abdominal thrusts. It is now recommended to use abdominal thrusts only after five back blows have been administered. And those rescues Dr. Heimlich claims to have performed. According to son Peter M. Heimlich, both incidents were stunts concocted by a PR company. In the season one finale, The Reunion, Flo's high school beau Charlie returns to Cowtown to pick up where he and Flo left off. Now a wealthy real estate investor, he offers to sweep her off her feet to a completely different life, leaving Flo with a decision to make. Meanwhile, Farley and Miriam are tied up doing last-minute taxes for the bar. Arlen Dean Snyder guest-starred in this final installment of the initial six-episode order. A top-ten ranking and 38 share for this short run made a return for the 1980 fall season a lock. However, CBS programmers moved Flow from its very cushy position following MASH up to 8 p.m. 7 Central against the highly rated Little House on the Prairie on NBC and That's Incredible on ABC. Season 2 returned on October 27th and starts off with Flo and the gang fighting a skunk who has taken up residence beneath the yellow rose that has completely driven away all the patrons and becomes the enemy below. A new recording of the Hoyt Axton theme is heard, episode titles are now used in the beginning credits, and Flo's signature slogan makes a return after it not being heard since the first episode, again directed at Earl. Character actor Bob Hastings makes an appearance, and bar patron Chester, played by Mickey Jones, now becomes more prominent with several lines of dialogue. However, this was an extremely weak episode to start off the season with, especially considering Flo was now CBS's lead-in for Monday nights. Monday, it's Flo's new season. Crooked Farley's running for office and Flo's about to run him out of the Yellow Rose. Then, Alan's the only man at an all-woman's magazine, but his interview with England's lady prime minister gets lost in the translation. Ladies' man. Hello, love. Flo, followed by ladies' man, Monday. In Farley, the people's choice, Farley is insufferable as he runs for zoning commissioner, using the Yellow Rose as a debate location. When he gets elected, his delight is tempered when he finds out Fran will be his administrative assistant, watching over the commissioner's office with her eagle eye, an appointment engineered by Flo. We finally meet one of Farley's foreign business partners, played by John Fujioka. The Hawaiian actor often played Asian characters and was prolific in the 70s and 80s, appearing in over 50 TV series and TV movies, including Kung Fu, Wonder Woman, and Tales of the Gold Monkey. Identical twins Denise and Diane Gallup also appeared as Farley's cheerleaders. The Gallup twins showed up in 14 TV series and movies during the 1980s, including The Fall Guy, Hill Street Blues, Otherworld, The A-Team, and The Love Boat. They appeared as Wrigley's Doublemint twins in the 1970s, and yes, 
later spoofed that role in 1987's Spaceballs. This was the best episode yet, with plenty of plot elements for a 24-minute sitcom and character development for Flo, Fran, and Farley, potentially setting them up for more interesting situations going forward. In Episode 3, Bull is back in town. While Flo deals with the failing electrical wiring in the bar, a reclusive prospector who visits town once a year blusters into the Yellow Rose and takes a liking to the red-headed woman that runs the place. Flo has to learn how to handle Bull the Prospector, accompanied by imaginary friend Hardpan and donkey trio Shadrach, Meshach, and Betty. G.W. Bailey guest stars as the utterly ridiculous Bull in this first of five appearances on Flo, and you could tell he had a lot of fun with the role. A frequent guest actor on TV, he was Sergeant Rizzo on M.A.S.H. and Lieutenant and later Captain Harris on the Police Academy movies. We got a third rendition of the theme song by Hoyt Axton, which was used for all remaining episodes. This aired following a two-week break to dramatically lower weekly ratings, rating 42nd place out of 60 shows. Flow, followed by the Lawrence Pressman sitcom Ladies' Man, just were not cutting it against Little House, and that's incredible. A Castleberry Thanksgiving, Parts 1 and 2, airing in a special one-hour presentation. It's Thanksgiving, and Flo is intent on a Norman Rockwell holiday, with the entire Castleberry clan arriving, including Brother Edsel and wife Duchess and kids Bobby, Princess, and Countess, Brother JJ, Brother Lonnie, Brother Rhett, and Father Jarvis Castleberry, who walked out on the family nearly 30 years ago. Trouble is, Jarvis showing up was a surprise orchestrated by Flo and the source of much family friction, threatening to ruin the holiday. Guest starring Robert Ayers as Rhett, G.W. Bailey as Lonnie, Burton Gilliam as J.J., Jerry Hardin as Edsel, Sharon Spellman as Duchess, David Hollander as Bobby, Kayla and Christy Dobkin as Princess and Countess, and Forrest Tucker returns as Jarvis Castleberry in this two-parter. This was a change of pace for the series, and everyone got to display some dramatic acting skills, especially Polly Holiday, G.W. Bailey, and Sudi Bond. The closing credits for Part 2 were also unique. Instead of the normal closing theme, the hand of an unidentified character went through Polaroid photos of the Thanksgiving gathering on a table as a slow harmonica version of the theme was heard. Even though this aired as a special one-hour presentation on November 24th, it was produced as two episodes, videotaped on two separate weeks. In Episode 6, when Flo wins a trip to Disney World, she pulls Miriam's name out of a hat to go along with her. But her ridiculously needy husband, Hollis, disapproves, and soon it's Willoughby versus Willoughby when the trip causes a huge fight between them. Here, Donegan Smith returned as the rarely seen Hollis, and Walt Disney World, used here as a plot point, had only been open nine years prior to this episode and was still a relatively new attraction for much of the country. In 1980, the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad opened in the Magic Kingdom, and Disney was getting national press for Epcot Center, then under construction for an October 1982 opening. 
The park also debuted unlimited passport tickets that year, priced at $18.75 for two days and $29.25 for three days. Today, a three-day, one-park-per-day ticket runs between $325 to $400 for an adult, depending on the time of year. Monday, it's a great big knock-down, drag-out party. Flo gives a friend a final send-off, but will Farley make her wing-ding a downer? Find out Monday night. In Episode 7, when a bar regular dies, it turns out his last wish was to have his funeral at the Yellow Rose. But when Flo discovers his place in Cowtown history, she has to fight City Hall to carry out his wish in So Long Shorty. But are they eulogizing the wrong man? Guest starring Dolores Albin, Richard Stahl, Woodrow Parfey, and Alan Oppenheimer as mortician Mr. Ogilvy. We get our first hint in this episode of a friends with benefits type situation between Flo and Earl. And this episode aired December 8, 1980. During the following show, the Lawrence Pressman sitcom Ladies' Man, the West Coast Network feed was interrupted with the news that John Lennon had been shot and killed at age 40. In Episode 8, Deserted Islands, Randy has a fight with his dad and quits his garage job with the dream of becoming a singer. With nowhere to go, he starts living in the Yellow Rose storeroom and washing clothes at the Castleberry house, quickly wearing out his welcome. Meanwhile, Les has entirely too much fun with Earl, exhausted from the cattle roundup. Flo's famous Kiss My Grits makes another appearance, this time aimed at Buddy, Randy's father and owner of the service station, played by George Lindsay. Fans of classic TV will recall George Lindsay was Goober Pyle on The Andy Griffiths Show and its spinoff, Mayberry RFD. This is interesting because an argument can be made that the character of Randy was an homage to the Goober Pyle character. And we get to hear Leo Burmester sing. In the final episode of 1980, The Miracle of Casa de Huevos, it's Christmas Eve and Flo's Mustang gets stuck on Earl's ranch during a rainstorm. Flo, Les, and Earl take refuge in the barn, and Earl's mare is about to give birth to a foal. But Flo is about to lose it, having to miss the annual snowflake ball. We've learned more about Earl's life in the last two episodes than in the prior 13. During branding season, he burns the candle at both ends, working as a ranch hand branding cattle on top of owning his own ranch. You wonder how he has time to work full-time as a bartender. The name of his ranch translates to House of Eggs in English. As Earl explains, his old business partner misnamed the ranch on his deathbed, thinking it meant House of Dreams. This episode was likely not taped in front of a studio audience. As producer Bob Isles points out, shows involving live animals, a lot of practical effects, or needed scenes shot on the back lot were produced without an audience present. This episode of Flow ended the year much higher than the last several, again in the top 20 shows on TV, in the company of other series like Trapper John M.D., WKRP in Cincinnati, and Magnum P.I. Next week on Flow. This better be good, baby sister. I was about to give Virgil a chance to make my top ten. Mama is getting old. Virgil, come back here! 1981 starts off with Gray Escape. 
Concerned about Mama's laid-back lifestyle, Fran convinces Flo to sign her up for every volunteer and church group they can find in order to occupy her time. When Mama goes missing, everyone is worried and the search is on to find her. The comical amount of volunteer groups they sign up Mama for include shopping for shut-ins, dial a granny, a soup kitchen, the Salvation Army, the 4-H, the Cowtown Little Theater, the JCs, and the Cowtown Garden Club. Also, although Flo talks up a big game, it took 16 episodes before we actually see her take a cowboy home to her trailer. Or at least try to. Guest starring James Victor, the recognizable Henry Jones and Ian Wolfe, and young George Olden and Kevin Brando as Petey and Chucky, boys that Flo plays grandma to when Mama goes AWOL. A pair of 80s child actors, this was Olden's very first credit, and he later starred in the TBS series Rocky Road. Brando was in the film Saturday the 14th and became the voice of Schroeder in the 1980s Charlie Brown TV specials. The following week in Pretty Baby, Flo agrees to take care of the baby of a trucker couple when they go on a nonstop haul to Chicago. But when Flo thinks she can pawn Little Beaver off on family members while she continues her regular schedule, she has another think coming. The famous Kiss My Grits makes a return aimed at Earl. Richard Hill and Rebecca Reynolds were Flo's trucker friends, Red Ryder, and his wife, Rosie. This episode features a new bar regular, Myron, played by a Ted Ashford, whose only acting credit is for Flo. Myron is oddly called out in dialogue and is seen only in this episode, regardless of what IMDb claims. Two weeks later, when Fran's 12-year fiancé dumps her for another woman, Flo decides to throw her a party. But when Fran is out with Piano Man Les all night, it has Flo saying, Not with my sister, you don't. Here, Flo does a hilarious routine explaining the three types of men to Fran. Henry Jones returns as Mama's friend Harold, as well as Terry Wills as Wendell Tubbs and Donegan Smith as Hollis Willoughby. This was the final episode that aired on Monday night, as the show fell into the bottom ten that week as more viewers chose to make a joyful noise over on NBC's Little House on the Prairie in one of its most beloved episodes. Twelve days later, Flo started its second two-parter. In episodes 13 and 14, The Price of Avocados, Parts 1 and 2, bar regulars Roy and Tyler talk Flo into investing the bar's bank account into a shady-sounding avocado deal. This upsets bookkeeper Miriam to the point of quitting. With Flo not able to make a mortgage payment, her trailer is now at risk of being confiscated by Farley. However, it seems somebody beat Farley to it. This leads to a standoff in Earl's barn, with Flo waiting on Roy and Tyler to get back with the avocado money. Meanwhile, it is revealed that Miriam is pregnant. Here, Bob Lahendro takes over from Mark Daniels as primary director for the rest of the series, as the show moves to Saturdays at 9 p.m., 8 central, against ABC's top-rated The Love Boat and Walking Tall on NBC. 
This was presented in the press as CBS's attempt to keep the show afloat, as it had been slipping in the TV ratings since the new year began. But was Flo really expected to hold her own against Captain Steubing and crew? She, of course, didn't, and the serious slide in the ratings continued with these episodes, all the way to the bottom ten shows of each week. Michael Keenan guest-starred as Deputy Lowman. His voice was unmistakable. He was the Reverend Little Ed Pembroke on WKRP in Cincinnati. He was also Mayor Bill Pugin on Picket Fences. Viewers will also note Joyce Boulevant no longer appears in the opening credits, now listed in the closing credits as guest-starring. Uh-oh. In Welcome to the Club... The stuck-up Ms. Fort Worth Businesswomen's Club takes an interest in the Yellow Rose, and Flo is encouraged to impress their representative Louise for good PR. This backfires when Brother Lonnie shows up and both Flo and Louise end up in jail. The famous catchphrase makes a return aimed first at Lonnie, then at the prisoners of the jail. Barbara Babcock and Lyndon Childs guest as the snooty Louise and Judge Browning, and G.W. Bailey returns as Lonnie Castleberry. In Gunsmoke at the Yellow Rose, Flo reading an old western novel to Bull triggers a fantasy where she envisions the Yellow Rose as an old west saloon, reminiscent of the Long Branch Saloon in Gunsmoke. The opening credit font used here was in an Old West style, and several Old Western movie phrases and titles are dropped in dialogue, such as True Grit and Remember the Alamo, and Flo plants a kiss on Old West Marshall Earl and hurls a kiss my grits at Modern Day Earl. G.W. Bailey returns as Bull, and Mickey Jones as Old West Chester shows off serious gun-twirling skills. This episode featured the final appearance of Joyce Boulafont. In episode 17, What Are Friends For? Mel Sharples walks into the Yellow Rose during a slump in business and essentially takes over, saying the bar needs a man's touch. His meddling increasingly annoys Flo until things reach a breaking point and she tells him, you guessed it, kiss my grits. Yes, after a week off, Flo returned on March 14th still on Saturday, but now moved up to 8.30, 7.30 Central, following WKRP in Cincinnati, and against Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sisters on NBC and 240 Robert on ABC. Vic Tabak appears as Mel Sharples. Tabak was, of course, still starring as Mel over on Alice, nearing the conclusion of its fifth season at the time. At the conclusion of the episode, Mel plants a huge kiss on Flo which calls back to Flo's finale on Alice, and Polly Holiday looks surprised and nearly broke character in the version aired. That's because it was an unscripted surprise, as related by Bob Isles. Yes, that was a big surprise. I think it was more in the way he did it than that he did it. I'm not sure. Anyway, his appearance was another crowd-pleaser. In Just What the Doctor Ordered, Flo ignores her health with her all-night partying ways and ends up hospitalized with tonsillitis. Now speechless, Earl thinks this is a good time to lecture her with a laundry list of criticisms. Meanwhile, the newspaper reprints a historic article, mistakenly indicating Flo is 50 years old. In a Flo first, 
Kiss My Grits is seen in print, written on a handheld chalkboard directed at Earl. Cal Bartlett guessed it as Flo's trucker date Double Clutch. Steven Johnson and Kay Callan also appeared. Flo actually wore a sequin star-fringed vest. In this episode, reminiscent of the theme song lyrics. In Footsie, with Earl at home recuperating from a work injury, he finds himself in the middle of both Flo and old girlfriend BJ, who show up at the same time to attend to him, giving us the classic two dates at the same time trope. Joanna Cassidy guests as Billy June. She had been a regular on the canceled 240 Robert and was making the rounds as TV show guest star before her turn as a recurring character on Falcon Crest and cast alongside Dabney Coleman on Buffalo Bill. Episode 20, You Gotta Have Hoyt. When none other than Hoyt Axton and his entourage walk into the bar, Randy, Farley, Mama, and even Fran are all starstruck. But animosities between the truckers, cowboys, and oil men that have been simmering all day come to a head when a huge brawl breaks out that has Flo yelling, Kiss My Grits, to the entire crowd. This inspires an impromptu concert where Hoyt composes a song on the fly in honor of Flo and her yellow rose. In what had to be the best crowd pleaser of the entire series run, Hoyt Axton not only guest starred, but in a meta moment, sang the entire full-length Flo's Yellow Rose song we'll discuss in just a bit. Keeping in line with the surge in popularity of country music and its associated lifestyle and stars, he had a series pilot in the works for NBC's 1981 fall season, The Hoyt Axton Show, a one-hour drama which aired in September but was not picked up for series. Other country-western-themed TV attempts for 1981 included the CBS unsold pilot One Night Band and the very short-lived ABC variety show The Nashville Palace. NBC's Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sisters would also return for the 1981-82 fall season. Hoyt Axton also guest starred on other TV shows of this era, including The Bionic Woman, WKRP in Cincinnati, Different Strokes, and Trapper John, M.D. In the following episode, when Flo is hours late returning from a business trip in Austin, she has quite a story for the bar. But are they ready for Flo's encounter of the third kind? We hear another Kiss My Grits, this time shouted at a Texas Rangers helicopter as Flo drags Earl and Randy out into the desert to camp out and look for UFOs in tight green disco pants. The name of this episode is an obvious reference to the 1977 blockbuster Steven Spielberg film, and one scene in particular is an homage to one in that film, when a truck that follows Richard Dreyfuss's Roy Neary in his vehicle sails up and over it when he signals it to go around. However, Flo's experience would have been a close encounter of the second kind, at most, where physical evidence is left behind from a UFO, as Flo referred to scorched earth in the desert where she had her sighting. Sadly, this episode performed almost the lowest weekly Nielsen ranking so far, falling to number 62 out of 70 shows for the week of April 13th through 19th. Again slipping into the 60s, the show went on a scheduling hiatus, 
as CBS had clearly made the decision to cancel the series. Although this was not revealed until the 1981 fall schedule was announced to the press late on April 30th. The final two episodes of the now-canceled series were burned off on two Tuesday nights in June. Episode 22, No Man's Land. Buddy from the service station decides to sell his property and discovers part of the Yellow Rose sits on his land, specifically the part with the bathrooms. Flo flips her lid when he offers to sell this section of the property to her for $1,000. Things take on more of an emergency situation when a busload of beer-drinking Germans pile into the bar. This time, it's gas station owner Buddy that earns a kiss my grits. But after 27 episodes of Buddy's service station being across the street, dialogue for this episode incorrectly indicates it is now located next door to the Yellow Rose. Evidently a continuity error made by writer John Boney. In the final episode, The Dance, Flo is invited to join the loyal order of the Lone Star, and her date is in the hospital with two broken legs. She strong-arms Earl into going as her escort, but when he finds out he's expected to give a speech about Flo, that just might be his breaking point. L-O-L-S was spelled out at the podium at the dance, which stood for the Loyal Order of the Lone Star. But the current slang definition gives this an extra level of humor. First used on Usenet newsgroups as early as 1989, the initialism LOL, which stands for Laugh Out Loud, has surpassed online use and is now used in everyday vernacular. Not much else was notable in this final episode airing on Tuesday, June 30th, amidst summer repeats. As a final insult to the canceled series, most newspapers incorrectly identified the airing of this last new episode as a rerun. Forgotten TV will return in a moment. Behind the Scenes Flow was a production of Warner Brothers Television and, like Alice, was videotaped on Tuesday nights in front of a live audience on Stage 9 of their Burbank lot. That same stage previously hosted F Troop, The Paul Lynn Show, Eight is Enough, and about four years later, Night Court would be shot there. Alice was also videotaped on Tuesday nights on Stage 3. Waits for studio admission to shows were often hours long. Following tapings, the cast of Alice would often frequent the El Chiquito Mexican restaurant across the street from the Burbank lot. Alice fan David Barry Plunkett attended tapings with his family three times from 1981 to 1983 while on vacations to Southern California. On their first visit, Barry's large scrapbook of Alice clippings and memorabilia gained the attention of the production team, and he was taken backstage to meet Linda Lavin. On their second visit, the family happened to dine at the El Chiquito and was told about the after-taping habit of the cast. 
Returning to El Chiquito following taping, Barry again met Linda as well as Vic Tabak. On their visit the following year, Barry got to visit with Phil McKeon, Vic Tabak, and supporting actor Tony Longo. Alice tapings sometimes attracted celebrity attendees. Barry recalls seeing Casey Kasem, Nancy McKeon, Linda Welchel, Sonny Schroyer, and Ron Kuhlman at various tapings. The production week on Flow was much like any other sitcom of the era, following a relentless weekly schedule. New scripts were couriered to the actors Wednesday evenings. Thursday morning, the actors did a table read where the script was timed. A walkthrough was then done where the actors physically acted out the movement and positions on the stage, called blocking. On Friday, differently colored script pages might be given out, containing any changes in dialogue or stage directions, and a performance was done that evening for the writers, producers, and any network or studio people that attended. Further script changes might be delivered to actors over the weekend, and Monday morning, a final, final version of the script may be handed out, with writers often having worked through the weekend to hash out any requested changes or issues the script had. Then the script was run through again, this time on camera, where it was worked out how the episode would appear on television. All blocking, camera, and stage movement was finalized. The episode was again performed in front of the writers and producers. Hair and makeup day was Tuesday. Actors reported to work at noon and got into makeup. The episode was then videotaped twice without an audience. The cast and crew had a dinner break and came back in the early evening for yet another run-through of the episode. Studio pages began working the audience line after 6 p.m. and tickets were taken. Although tickets were free, they did not guarantee a seat since ticket distribution was in excess of studio capacity. Therefore, early arrival was advised, and some audience members may have been waiting in line since early to mid-afternoon. There were also two tiers of tickets, regular and VIP. Celebrities, friends of the cast and crew, guests of the guest actors, etc., were issued VIP tickets. These VIPs did not wait in line, but marched to the front, were let in, and given preferential seating. Doors closed at 7 p.m., and no further attendees were let in. The audience was greeted by producer Ron Landry, who would go over the rules, warm up the audience with a comedy bit, then introduce the producers and the director, before finally introducing the cast members. The actors had gone to make up at 7 p.m., and the show started at 7.30. If an actor obviously flubbed a line or if a scene didn't go as planned, a retake may have been done in front of the audience. The show was generally over by about 9 p.m. However, after the audience was released, any needed pickups were then taped, where parts of scenes may need to be reshot due to various reasons. However, the multi-camera filming technique used, made popular by Desilu Studios on I Love Lucy, reduced the number of times a scene needed to be reshot for technical reasons and made editing easier by reducing continuity issues. Unlike a film set, the director and control room crew were separated from the stage and typically saw and heard everything through the camera's point of view, orchestrating things via radio. On flow, the director and control crew would operate in a truck outside the studio, unseen by the live audience. Also, unlike filmed episodes or movies that produce scenes out of order and rely on later editing, 
multi-camera sitcoms done in front of a live audience were performed in sequence, like a stage show. For that reason, typically a director stuck with the show for some time, becoming very familiar with the cast and all elements of the production. The two directors responsible for 22 of the 29 episodes of Flow were Mark Daniels and Bob Lahendro. Mark Daniels attended University of Michigan and the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York in the early 1930s. His entertainment career was interrupted by World War II, where he served as executive officer and general manager of Irving Berlin's This Is the Army, the biggest and best-known morale-boosting show for the troops. Before his entry into television, he had acted in, managed, or directed over 200 stage plays. Hired by CBS in 1948 to direct the Ford Theater Hour, he had the opportunity to direct his wife Meg Mundy in the fifth episode, The Silver Cord. This led to work on Nash Air Flight Theater, also for CBS. Then a watershed moment in his career took place when he signed on to direct I Love Lucy for Desilu and CBS. Directing the first 38 episodes of that classic sitcom, Daniels utilized the three-camera filming technique that show became famous for. Incredibly, Daniels left the classic sitcom after the first season for a better-paying gig, later saying, Maybe it was a stupid thing to do, but then we didn't know we were creating history. We were just doing a show. Daniels next worked on I Married Joan, The Goldbergs, The Dick Powell Theater, and a show called The Lieutenant, in 1964, putting him on the radar of Gene Roddenberry, running his first series. Daniels was then selected to be one of the directors of Star Trek, helming a total of 14 episodes of that series. In addition to The Man from UNCLE, Dr. Kildare, Ben Casey, Gunsmoke, and other series throughout the 1960s. Daniels was a regular director on CBS as well as Warner Television shows, working on Hogan's Heroes, The Doris Day Show, Kung Fu, Private Benjamin, in addition to Flo and 86 episodes of Alice. When Lucille Ball made her return to series television in 1986 on ABC's Life with Lucy, Daniels returned to work with her on six episodes of that short series. The final series he worked on was Fox's Mr. President with George C. Scott in the late 80s. After a 40-year career as one of the most accomplished directors in television, Mark Daniels died in 1989 at age 77. Bob Lahendro grew up without a television, being a child of the 1940s, but was a fan of radio growing up with Jack Benny, Red Skelton, and Fibber McGee and Molly. He studied radio television production at University of Illinois, graduating in 1956. He started in television at WCHS-TV in Charleston as a camera operator. Then he made his way to Hollywood, first holding cue cards for Jack Benny and Red Skelton, the names he grew up listening to on the radio. Then as a stage manager on the Red Skelton, Danny Kaye, and Smothers Brothers shows. He progressed to associate director on Smothers Brothers, as well as the new All in the Family in 1971. From there, he did a lot of work as director for Norman Lear on Sanford and Son, 
Good Times, Hot L. Baltimore, as well as All in the Family, for which he won the Directors Guild of America Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Comedy Series in 1972, as well as a Primetime Emmy the following year. His non-Lear work included That's My Mama and Welcome Back, Cotter, before becoming a regular director on Flow. Following the Flow series, Lahendra worked on NBC daytime drama Santa Barbara before retiring in the late 1980s. Episodes of Flow interestingly began with a cold open or teaser, where the story immediately begins with a scene before the opening credits even roll. Season 2 added episode titles. These were both uncommon production choices for sitcoms of the era. Although a few sitcoms adopted the use of cold opens in the mid-1960s on some seasons, see Gilligan's Island, Bewitched, and The Beverly Hillbillies, this practice fell almost completely out of use in the 1970s, with few exceptions like Barney Miller and WKRP. Cold opens later became more common and were used on popular sitcoms like Cheers, Friends, and The Big Bang Theory. The use of episode titles on a sitcom's opening credits remains virtually unheard of, with episode titles generally only becoming known by fans of the show and by casual viewers as the one where... The writers of Friends later poked fun at this, as virtually all of their episode titles began as The One With or The One Where... The cold open was followed by the 45-second Flo's Yellow Rose theme song composed by Fred Werner, with lyrics written by Susan Glickman. Werner, a Tony Award-nominated musician, composed the original theme music for Eight is Enough's first two seasons and provided music for the Dukes of Hazard. Susie Glickman was a personal assistant to Dolly Parton during the 1980s, hired after consistently showing up at the singer's public appearances, offering her lyric-writing services. In 2012, she wrote, produced, choreographed, and starred in the short film Dancing Feet Helped Defeat Parkinson's, following her diagnosis with the disease in her 60s. The last time she spoke to the press, she was still writing jokes for Dolly Parton. When asked how she and Werner came to write the flow theme, she told Forgotten TV, I'm a lyric writer and Fred's a music man. We met at a class for lyric writers at UCLA, and when the class ended, we continued writing together. Through Fred's contacts, we met the director or some higher up of flow, and when he asked our vision for the song, I said, We will build the song around the line, the door is always open, and the beer is always cold, at Flo's Yellow Rose. Fred loved it, and so did the higher up. Popular country singer Hoyt Axton, a personal friend of Polly Holiday, was tapped to sing the theme. And if you listen closely, three versions of it were used for show openings. The first was for the initial six-episode run. The second version was heard only in the first two episodes of season two, where a single word was changed in a lyric, from making smiles at every tight jean cowboy to making eyes at every tight jean cowboy and minor changes were heard in Axton's inflections and the musical arrangement. And the third version, which was the most polished in terms of performance and music, kept the lyric change and was heard from the third episode of season two onward. 
a fourth full-length version of the song was also produced. This is the version performed live in the episode featuring Hoyt Axton, although Hoyt slightly changed a lyric there as well, making the total number of song versions to be five by my count. The full song had a 1981 release from Warner Music's Elektra Records label. The song was released as a single on a 45 vinyl record with Axton's Lion in the Winter on the opposite side. As covered at the beginning, Flo was spun off from the sitcom Alice in the middle of its fourth season. In August 1979, it hit the press that Flo was a go, and the new spinoff would be a mid-season replacement series for CBS early the following year. After 1980 arrived, CBS began encouraging viewers to begin looking to the 80s, a variation on their fall 1979 We're Looking Good campaign. America, we're doing what we knew we could. Looking to the 80s, looking for excitement. Looking to the 80s, CBS, we're looking good. Seven of their 11 new fall shows had failed, and the network began staggering mid-season replacements, a dozen in all. Several of these series had abnormally short five to six episode test runs, with the show quickly disappearing from the schedule, if not an immediate success. These included The Contender with Mark Singer in his first leading role, Hagen, a legal drama with Chad Everett in the title role, Phil and Mickey, a Cold War sitcom, and Beyond Westworld, covered in episode 44 of Forgotten TV. Flow was the most successful of these short test runs, being given a cushy time slot on Monday nights following MASH prior to one-hour drama Lou Grant. This gave it an envious rating, ending its initial run as the number seven show on television with an audience share of 38. Although a spinoff for the Flo character had been discussed as early as the first season of Alice when it became clear Flo was the breakout character, Polly Holiday herself seemed publicly hesitant to leave the series. During season three, she commented regarding a potential spinoff. I don't know if I would want another five years of playing her, assuming it would be a successful series. My whole feeling is if they would end Alice tomorrow, I'd come right back to New York and do anything in theater. On Alice, Holiday had lived through those multiple sets of revolving producers early in the series and both her character as well as that of Tommy Hyatt had been briefly reduced in a misguided attempt to retool the show at the beginning of the second season. Philip McKeon had even been told he would no longer be used. When the series was course-corrected by new producers Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Davis, who ran the show for the rest of its run, they brought in new writers as well as accomplished director Mark Daniels and reinstated the Tommy character. Polly Holiday had done much to develop the Flo character, and the version of it we saw on Alice as well as Flo was as much or more her creation as it was that of writer Robert Getchell. Holiday had intentionally not seen the Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore film, not wanting to be influenced by Diane Ladd's portrayal of Flo. Thus, she crafted her own Flo persona constructing a character backstory based on the details from both the movie and early sitcom scripts. 
Show writers of Alice incorporated her ideas into episode scripts. Her ideas for the Flow spinoff, however, were not initially accepted by the studio or network. According to Barry Putt's book, Holiday's initial concept was to have Flo return to her childhood home of Cowtown, Texas, where she would marry a local politician who would then become the governor of Texas. Episodes would revolve around Flo as First Lady of Texas, and stories would provide fish-out-of-water tales with the down-home Flo attempting to fit in with the Austin political elite. Alan Shane, now head of Warner Television, didn't think this concept sufficient to sustain a series, and the job of writing a pilot was given to Dick Clare and Jenna McMahon in late 1979. If you draw a blank when hearing those names, they were the creators of The Family on The Carol Burnett Show, a series of 31 sketches featuring Mama, Eunice, and Ed, as played by Vicki Lawrence, Burnett, and Harvey Corman. They had also recently worked on different strokes, writing the season one-ender The Girls' School, setting up the spinoff series The Facts of Life. Although they had limited production experience and had never run a series, they were also to be the showrunners for Flow. In December, Claire and McMahon brought on friends Robert Isles and James R. Stein to work as writer-producers under them. Stein and Isles previously had a late Saturday night comedy radio show a decade earlier on College Station KUSC, a sort of precursor to later comedy radio shows like Howard Stern. It may have been college radio, but the station had 30,000 watts of power and was heard in Southern California by many in the entertainment industry. Failing to break into professional radio, the pair took a course on TV writing there at USC and worked under writer-producer Digby Wolf and met agent Michael Ovitz, a fan of their radio show. They soon were writing content for the Smothers Brothers, Bill Cosby and Lily Tomlin, and found their way to working with Claire and McMahon on The Carol Burnett Show. Perhaps due to Polly Holiday and or the network and studio not happy with their version of the Flow pilot, or other reasons not clear, Claire and McMahon were let go from the production, although they maintained the written-by credit for the pilot and created-by credit for the series. The executive then put in charge of the show was Jim Mulligan. Mulligan was also working on Season 8 of M.A.S.H. and had previously worked with Isles and Stein on The Smothers Brothers. Mulligan then hired the team of Ron Landry, George Geiger, and Tom Biner as writers and supervising producers. The trio called themselves Tantamount. Ron Landry had been part of the radio comedy team Hudson and Landry in the early 70s and had written for the CBS series Sisnik. Landry would do the studio audience warm-ups for Flo, often a solo version of Hudson and Landry's Ajax Liquor Sketch. George Geiger had written for TV specials for The Carpenters, Paul Lind, and the Starland Vocal Band, as well as episodes of DeMond Wilson's very short-lived Baby, I'm Back. Tom Biner was the only one in the trio with prior production credits for an ABC after-school special and segments of the Saturday morning Croft Super Show. This was the first supervising producer role for any of them, Hopefully, that helps you make sense of the gaggle of names seen in the opening credits. 
one creative voice that cannot be overlooked in the development of flow is that of Polly Holiday herself. Although her official title, in addition to that of lead actor, was creative consultant, in the wake of the departure of Claren McMahon, by all accounts, Holiday essentially became a shadow producer and very much one of the people in charge of the production. The early version of the pilot was altered with the addition of characters that Holiday had a hand in creating and casting, several of these actors having a live theater background that she had either worked with or seen on stage in her New York theater days. Writer-producer Bob Isles shared his recollections of this time with Forgotten TV. I remember early on she kept adding cast members, a mother, a sister, a girlfriend, the bartender at the bar, a young guy employee, a mildly corrupt politician, a cynical piano player at the bar. I could see it would be tough to service all these characters every week, plus deal with any number of guest stars. Holiday herself commented on her involvement in series development in a March 1980 newspaper article. These are new writers, and they don't know Flo's personality quirks and character traits like I do. I'm working 10 hours a day just getting ready to do our first episode. I'm involved in the casting, too. The star has to be like a good lead horse, setting the pace and work habits. That's what good old Flo is doing, with a little help from me. Indeed, Flo started with eight regular characters, double the amount older classic sitcoms usually had. Family sitcoms of the 1950s revolving around home life typically had four, perhaps five, regular characters. Think The Honeymooners, I Love Lucy, Leave It to Beaver, or Father Knows Best. Many later sitcoms also followed the four-character structure to great success, All in the Family, One Day at a Time, Maud. Three's Company, The Golden Girls, Married with Children, and Seinfeld all come to mind. Let's take a closer look at the background and casting of all those characters. Starting with Flo herself, Polly Holiday. Originally from Jasper, Alabama, Holiday grew up in Talladega County, where her early interests prompted her to study music, teach piano, and sing in the church choir. In college, she became interested in the performing arts and later joined the Asolo Repertory Theater in Sarasota, Florida, who she stayed with for a decade. Moving to New York City in the early 70s, she was cast in off-Broadway stage plays and TV commercials. After joining the cast of Broadway's All Over Town, her connection with the play's director, Dustin Hoffman, led to being introduced to casting director Alan Shane, who gave her a role in 1976's All the President's Men, which brings us to where we were earlier when discussing Alice Casting. Personally, Holiday was vastly different than the character she became known for. Her parents divorcing when she was young put her off marriage, focusing on a career rather than raising a family. 39 years old when cast as Flo, her natural brown hair worn down, soft-spoken manner, and conservative dress afforded her privacy even in public as she was rarely recognized. Living in a modest Greenwich Village apartment during hiatuses in production and driving a 1972 Chevrolet, she frequented corner cafes and local bodegas, where she was known only as a customer, saying, They have no idea what I do or who I am, except that I live in the neighborhood. 
Even during production season in L.A., she was not known to party and was more likely to be seen at the Pick and Save than at the Roxy nightclub. These qualities, as well as her Alabaman background and her personal life experience with her coal-mining, truck-driving father leaving the family early in her life following her parents' divorce, and her time waiting tables at a Howard Johnson's all carried over into the character. I used a lot of my growing up in Alabama. I knew a lot of women like her. Good, hardworking, usually supporting six kids. Additional character details became revealed over the Flow series. We found her strawberry blonde hair was in a French twist with a modified beehive. Her favorite perfume was Midnight Massacre. She was sensitive about being 42 years old, and characters trying to calculate her age was a running joke. When once directly asked, Do you think Flo is promiscuous? She answered, I'm not trying particularly to show her that way. In my mind, Flo is a lot of talk, and what she says she did last night you have to take with a grain of salt. I think she spends a lot of time watching TV in an old bathrobe, but she talks up her image of a swinger. I've never seen her as promiscuous. I don't think she sleeps around a lot. On Flow, it took 16 episodes before we explicitly saw Flo taking a man back to her trailer for some planned hanky-panky. This was a result of an intentional effort to tone down this aspect of the character, as revealed at a Season 2 press junket, with Holiday determined to leave viewers with a better impression of the Southern Flow. I do not like to see Southern characters as dumb people who were only interested in moonshine, grits, and fast cars. I'm trying to show Flo as a real woman of the South. A significant part of the presentation of the Flo character seen by the audience was her wardrobe. Costume consultant Rita Riggs and costumer Fran Reedwill are both seen in the show credits. Reedwill's IMDb is sparse. Only Flo and the Young and the Restless are listed. However, I found her credited on films such as the ABC TV movie Billion Dollar Threat, so it's likely she did more work than she's listed for. Rita Riggs was one of the busiest freelance costume designers in Hollywood for years. She worked on costuming for Hitchcock films Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie, as well as for TV series Maud, Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons, All in the Family, and Good Times, among others. As we'll see, Holiday was very hands-on with many aspects of behind-the-scenes production. She had exercised some influence on Flo's wardrobe, even on Alice, picking out Flo's off-duty Western-style clothing at Sears, and asking costumers not to add any new outfits for the character for the third season reasoning that the broken-in look of repeatedly laundered clothing added realism. Rita Riggs would be the first to point out Holiday continued contributing to Flo's wardrobe on the spinoff, saying, She shops thrift stores for wardrobe items and is careful not to have false notes in Flo's look. For example, the flat-heeled shoes. For years, Flo worked as a waitress, and she wears flats because of her feet. Flo's wardrobe became kind of a character in itself over the run of the series. Unlike Alice, where she was often seen in the pink waitress uniform, on Flo, the character would often have two to three costume changes per episode, 
very often incorporating shiny, tight disco pants and a neck scarf. A February 1981 article in Weekly World News thus claimed the flow look was taking the nation by storm at the time. Interviewed for the article, Holiday opined, This may be the next big thing in fashion. We call it Glitter West. Is America ready for this? Referring to her skin-tight purple stretch pants, peach satin blouse, wine-colored vest with gold fringes, bangle bracelets, and dice earrings. In dressing flow, we aim to be as tacky as we can. The trouble is, after a while, Flo's clothes don't seem out of the ordinary. When I go home, my own tailored slacks and blazer feel like a costume. As Holiday's mother Velma commented, She never dresses anything like Flo does. She always wears the nicest skirts and blouses and jackets. She's really such a neat and careful dresser. I can't imagine her ever looking in real life the way Flo does on TV. As much as Flo's outfits were a part of her character, so was her famous catchphrase. If you saw Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, you know Diane Ladd as Flo turned quite a few off-color phrases in that film. Some may recall what she told Mel to do with a paper sack. One of these was, You can kiss me where the sun don't shine. The portion of the saying, Where the sun don't shine, or alternately, Where the moon don't shine, were known phrases prior to the film, and refer to, shall we say, the interior of one's posterior. Tracking down the exact origin and age of these phrases is likely impossible, but this insult was used by an irritated Dick Cavett once to a well-lubricated Norman Mailer on the air in 1971. While seeming relatively tame by today's standards, this euphemism was still slightly too raw for primetime television in 1976. So the writers needed to come up with an alternate saying, as explained by Holiday in an interview years later. She couldn't use the same kind of language on TV, and they were looking for something that would sound naughty, but not be naughty. According to online lore, Kiss My Honeydew was first used, but when that got little reaction from the studio audience, it was said to have been changed to Kiss My Grits. Although Kiss My Honeydew was also used on an early season one episode in the final aired version. Grits are a traditional southern breakfast side dish made from cornmeal and usually served with butter or sometimes honey or sugar are added. Although initially thinking it sounded odd, Holiday performed the line. I did it, and it turned out to be very funny. Then, of course, they wanted to use it in every show. The catchphrase was typically heard in every one of the 90 episodes of Alice that Flo was featured in, sometimes more than once, and occasionally uttered by Alice or Vera. On Flo there seems to have been an effort to dial back the use of this phrase early in the series, before it being more commonly heard in Season 2. Still, over 29 episodes, Kiss My Grits was only used a dozen times. According to Holiday, the saying was owned by Warner Brothers. She was even propositioned about starring in TV commercials as the Flo character, with some brands wanting her to use the famous catchphrase. One of these was food maker Jim Dandy, 
known for their line of breakfast grits, who sent Holiday t-shirts with the slogan, Kiss My Grits, but with the Jim Dandy logo appearing in the crossbar of the T. Warner was not pleased and threatened to sue them if they didn't stop. Holiday also wasn't interested in appearing as the Flo character outside the TV shows. I wouldn't do that to Flo. I don't want her to be that way. However, the catchphrase unofficially showed up on buttons, pins, keychains, t-shirts, and patches of the era. By 1977, the phrase had become a cultural meme, appearing on newspaper ads, picket signs, and wherever an insult needed to be hurled. Kiss My Grits was even used as a movie title in a low-budget independent film in 1982 that aired on CBS in 1988. We'll kiss my grits. Continuing our look at the remaining cast of characters on Flow in the order they appeared on the opening credits. Jeffrey Lewis had spent the last several years turning down TV series roles until Flo came along. Spending his early years in Rhode Island, the family pulled up roots and moved to California when he was 10 years old. In high school, he showed interest and aptitude in the dramatic arts. Following school, he joined a summer stock theater in Massachusetts, then made his way to off-Broadway plays and regional theater. His first television work materialized with small roles on Then Came Bronson, Bonanza, and The High Chaparral, all in 1970. In 1973, he started working with Clint Eastwood in several of his films throughout the rest of the decade. High Plains Drifter, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Every Which Way But Loose, Any Which Way You Can, and Bronco Billy. Film roles along with plenty of TV work and one-off episode appearances, including a guest spot on Alice, kept him quite busy without taking a regular TV series role. As he told Jerry Buck in 1980, I hadn't wanted to do a series before, so I stuck to movies and the stage. The series they wanted me to do were parts I couldn't see doing every day. When the 44-year-old Lewis was offered the role of the bartending Earl, he felt differently. I could see getting into this part. He's not a stereotype. He's not a buffoon. He's a man's man. I could do just about anything I want with this role. He can be hard, or he can be a teddy bear, or he can be crazy. Bob Isles recalled one rehearsal when Lewis took a long pause, which prompted the script supervisor to call out his next line. To which Lewis replied, I didn't forget my line. I was acting. His role on Flow earned him a Golden Globe nomination, losing to Pat Harrington for One Day at a Time and Vic Tabak in Alice in a Tie. Following Flow, he took roles on the short-lived series Gunshy in 1983, Maximum Security in 1984, and Land's End in 1995 among over 130 film and TV credits over the next 37 years. He also fathered 10 children, several of which entered show business, such as daughter, Juliette Lewis. Jeffrey Lewis left us in 2015 at age 79. 38-year-old Jim B. Baker from Conrad, Montana, had just moved to L.A. after appearing as the lead in the 1978 comedy Manny's Orphans. 
It didn't take long before he was cast on flow as tightwad banker Farley Waters. The Vietnam veteran had plunged himself into theater following his stint in the Army, appearing in numerous stage productions, one of them being James McClure's comedy Lone Star, which made it to Broadway in 1979, where Polly Holiday and others in the production team had taken note of Baker's performance. Following Flo, Baker had a handful of TV roles as guest star, Private Benjamin, The Dukes of Hazard, Silver Spoons, but he found he didn't care for the business of the business, as he put it. On top of that, his real home was the stage. Among the various acting companies he performed with was the Milwaukee Repertory Theater, where he appeared in some 40 productions up to 2007, when he retired from acting following a back injury during a rehearsal. Baker suffered from lung and heart disease, and he and his wife were on a trip to visit a VA hospital for a checkup in 2014 when he collapsed at the hotel they were staying at and passed away. He was 72. Sudie Bond was born in Louisville but grew up in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. She caught the acting bug very early. At 10 years old, she was appearing in school plays performed for the public. She continued to be active in the performing arts in her high school and college years, training in dance and choreography. At 23, her television premiere was on CBS's Love of Life in 1951. She then acted in several Broadway productions and TV series roles over the following two decades. She had a recurring role on the Clavon Little series Temperatures Rising in 1973 and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman in 1976 and joined the cast of Flo in early 1980 when she was 51. Yes, although playing the mother of Flo, she was only nine years older than Polly Holiday. On the set of Flo, she became close friends with Leo Burmester, also a Kentucky native. One interesting note about the character, although referred to usually as Mama, the character's name was Velma Castleberry, undoubtedly an homage to Holiday's own mother, Velma Mabel. In the years immediately following Flo, Bond appeared in several films. Come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. I Am the Cheese with E.T.'s Robert McNaughton, Silkwood, Swing Shift, and Johnny Dangerously. Sadly, Sudi Bond died in 1984 at age 56, found at her New York apartment after having evidently suffered from a deadly asthma attack. Miriam Willoughby was possibly the least developed character. We don't know much about her. All her characteristics were defined by other people. She was Flo's supportive lifelong friend and a competent bookkeeper and waitress at the Yellow Rose, and she dutifully took care of husband Hollis's needs over her own. We do know more about the actress who played Miriam, 42-year-old Joyce Boulafont. From a very young age, Boulafont either wanted to be an actress or a nurse. At 14, she started as an apprentice in a professional summer stock theater, learning behind-the-scenes stagecraft in addition to acting. After high school, she trained at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York. She began appearing on television in 1959 on the pilot of NBC's Too Young to Go Steady, 
This led to a decades-long career in television, with roles on 1964's Tom, Dick, and Mary and 1969's The Bill Cosby Show, and continuing into the 70s with Love Thy Neighbor, Big John, Little John, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show, playing the wife of Gavin McLeod's Murray Slaughter. In the late 70s, she was a regular fixture on TV game shows like Match Game and Password. Boulafont is noted for missing out on two iconic TV series, the first being The Beverly Hillbillies, when she turned down a role on that series on the advice of her agent, who thought the show would never be a success. Later, she was the original choice of producers for the role of Carol Brady on The Brady Bunch, having been signed on for a seven-year contract. That all changed when Florence Henderson became available leaving Boulafont out in the cold. However, she showed no hard feelings about losing the part. Years later, saying, It all turned out just fine. I was very fond of Florence, and she was a lovely lady. And the show was very successful. Everything turned out the way it's supposed to. Right after filming the Paramount comedy hit, Airplane, the Flow series came along. However, recall from our episode rundown that Miriam wasn't seen shortly after the midpoint of Season 2. We'll examine what happened in just a bit. Following Flo, Boulafont continued to act on television, including several appearances on the 90s series Weird Science and select film projects in the 2000s. She also has appeared in two one-woman shows in recent years, Life Upon the Wicked Stage, and Remembering Helen Hayes with Love. In 2017, her memoir, My Four Hollywood Husbands, was published, which she also narrates on Audible. Like Sudie Bond, Leo Burmester also hailed from Louisville, Kentucky. Although presented as a younger man, Burmester was already 35 during the first year of the series' run, and while he may have played a simple character on Flow, he had a master's degree in drama and taught college for a year before entering the acting field. First as a local stage actor, making it to Broadway in 1979. Then his eyebrow-raising entry into TV and film came in 1980 as Water Sport on Al Pacino's Cruising. Like Jim Baker, Polly Holiday had also seen Burmester in the Broadway play Lone Star and got him signed on to her new series. However, there was initially no part for him in the pilot, and the character of naive young Randy was added at the last minute to wedge him into the cast. Following Flo, Burmester appeared in an additional 30 films, including Broadcast News, The Abyss, and the 1996 film Lone Star. On TV, he was a regular on the short-lived 1989 series True Blue, 1992's Arresting Behavior, and numerous one-off roles including several appearances on the Law & Order franchise. Leo Burmester died in 2007 at age 63. According to his best friend, his leukemia had been in remission, but he experienced a massive autoimmune attack on his brain, possibly triggered by a tick bite. Often stereotyped as prissy, uptight schoolteachers or librarians, Lucy Lee Flippin is a highly talented actress with a four-decade career in show business. Raised in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, she initially had negative reactions pursuing acting roles. 
Auditioning for commercial work, she was told she was too tall, and an agent advised her to go home and get married. Her training in the world of competitive skating landed her a stint with the famed Holiday on Ice for a year, and eventually started making a living after all in TV commercials in New York, despite what her West Coast agent had told her. She even landed a brief role in the 1971 X-rated comedy The Telephone Book as an obscene caller. Performing opposite Richard Gere in the Lincoln Center production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1975 may have been the break she had been looking for. Following Midsummer, her New York agent, who had now moved to Los Angeles, called her to come read for a role on the Mary Tyler Moore Show spinoff, Phyllis. However, it turned out she was only one of many women the agent had called to read for the part. But she did get a spot on the Bob Newhart Show, then a role on Woody Allen's Annie Hall. Her agent one day sent her to read for casting director Susan Suckman. A week later, she was asked back, this time to read for the role in front of Michael Landon. Most of this audience likely remembers her well from her run on Little House on the Prairie as Almanzo Wilder's sister, school teacher Eliza Jane. At age 36, Flippin started appearing on Little House at the beginning of the sixth season in the fall of 1979. After having a recurring role in the first half of that season, her agent, who also represented Polly Holiday, asked if she was interested in taking a regular series role on Holiday's new series. She accepted and asked Michael Landon to write her character out of Little House. She departed the show in a dramatic two-part season premiere, where her character ended her story on the show at the same time Laura Ingalls and Almanzo were getting married. As she told the press in 1981, Michael Landon is a saint. He wrote two hours for me when I left the show. Some much heavier stuff. It's the most work I've ever had on television. She soon found work on a sitcom in front of a studio audience quite different than filming out on Big Sky Ranch. It's much more high pressure. Ratings really become a factor. Indeed. In an ironic twist, at the beginning of its second season, CBS slotted Flo against Little House on Monday nights, where Flo repeatedly lost to it in the ratings. Following Flo... Flippin returned to appear on Little House a few times in a guest role capacity, but with Laura Ingalls Wilder, now Walnut Grove schoolteacher, and the Eliza Jane character written out of the core storyline, Flippin sought other roles. She was seen in the films Flashdance, Surf 2, Private Resort, Police Academy 2, and Summer School, mostly in comedic supporting roles. She had a stint on the short-lived The Last Precinct in 1986 and supporting turns on Small Wonder, Mr. Belvedere, Valerie, and a slew of TV sitcoms into the 90s. Her last role was in the 2008 film Prairie Fever. Now 78 and retired, Flippin still makes occasional Little House-related public appearances. Stephen Keep had moved to Los Angeles in 1978 to pursue a career in acting. The South Carolinian had attended the Yale School of Drama and acted with the Guthrie Theater Company. By his own account, he lost more roles than he ever played. 
After arriving in Hollywood, he did get some roles on late 70s TV. Lou Grant, MASH, Eight is Enough, and Dallas. However, what would have been his first Hollywood acting credit ended up on the cutting room floor, along with another actress. As fate would have it, Keep and Polly Holiday both acted in Woody Allen's 1976 film, The Front, but neither were seen in the final film. After about 15 one-off TV roles, Warner Television started casting for Flo, as he told the press in 1980. Then I got lucky. Thanks to Polly Holiday. When Polly spun off the Alice series to star in Flo, they needed an actor to play a misfit, piano-playing drifter. Polly thought I'd be right for the part, even though I couldn't play chopsticks. That's right. The 32-year-old Stephen Keep, who landed the role of piano-playing Les Kincaid, could not really play the piano. He did learn one simple piece for his audition, which he says he played badly. He didn't have an easy time auditioning for Flo either. First reading for Holiday and the writer's producers, then two weeks later for a larger group, a third audition was held on a Friday when there were clearly other actors up for the role. We were like rabbits in a cage in an experimental laboratory. Polly was the go-between, ushering us into the audition room, which was windowless and the size of a basketball court. It had concrete walls and fluorescent lights. It felt like Kafka was running the whole thing. This time, there were 25 executives from CBS and Warner Brothers. The atmosphere was like Mount Rushmore in triplicate. No one cracked a smile. Keep was then surprised to receive a phone call a couple hours later that he had landed the role. And production started Monday. Since Flo, Keep has appeared in numerous TV movies as well as episodic TV. In the 1990s, he started using his father's last name and was billed as Stephen Mills. In the 2000s, he began writing, producing, and directing short as well as full-length theatrical films under the name Stephen Keep Mills. His short, A Cigar at the Beach from 2005, screened worldwide in 166 festivals and won 47 awards. Liminal from 2008 screened at 84 festivals and collected 30 awards. His 2020 feature film, Love is Not Love, is viewable on Amazon Prime Video. Paying it forward for future generations, he also funds the Keep Mills Closing the Gap Scholarship at SUNY Empire State College. Let's not leave out the three bar regulars. The highly recognizable Mickey Jones, playing bar regular and good old boy Chester, with his red hair and trademark beard, had 140 credits, which includes nearly 50 films over his 47-year career. A motorcycle enthusiast in his personal life, he would often play bikers, truckers, or just good old boys. But before a career as a character actor, he was a drummer with several different musical acts, including that of Trini Lopez. A native Texan, he began a career in music, even before finishing high school in the 1950s, and was a drummer with several different musical acts in that decade. After college and an attempt at a factory job, he moved to L.A. to break into the entertainment business on the West Coast. First becoming a page at NBC Studios, he again drummed for Lopez as well as for Johnny Rivers, traveling with Rivers' band to entertain troops in Vietnam. 
after also drumming for Bob Dylan and the first edition with lead singer Kenny Rogers, he pursued an acting career. During the Forgotten TV era, you may have seen him on Galactica 1980, Chips, The Incredible Hulk, Aftermash, Automan, V, The A-Team, or ALF, just to name a handful of appearances. He also had a recurring role as Pete Bilker on the 90s sitcom Home Improvement, whose catchphrase, That Would Be Me, inspired the title of his 2009 autobiography. Mickey Jones died in 2018 at age 76. Two frequently seen bar regulars were truckers Roy and Tyler. From softcore smutty movies of the 1970s to family films, TV, horror, and sci-fi, George Buck Flower played them all. The scruffy-looking, usually bearded Flower, who had 164 credits over 34 years, would often be cast as a bum, drunk, or homeless character. He was also very familiar working behind the scenes as a writer or producer. Originally hailing from the Blue Mountains of Eastern Oregon, following stints in the Army and college, Flower moved to California and began appearing in local theater, becoming a member of the Inspiration Players that toured the country with live performances. In film, he got his start with trash filmmaker Harry H. Novak, playing characters whose names can't even be repeated here. Making the transition to the mainstream, he appeared in the Wilderness Family films, and you might remember him as the park bench bomb from Back to the Future. Crazy drunk driver. Director John Carpenter cast him in several of his films in the 1980s, including They Live, where his character was easily swayed to betray humanity by the alien invaders. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. George Flower died in 2004 at age 66. Of all the supporting actors, Gordon Hurst, who played bar regular and trucker Tyler, is the most enigmatic. We know he is from Vicksburg, Mississippi, and he has 20 acting credits on IMDb in addition to Flow, beginning with a string of films, 1971's The Last Picture Show, 1974's The Sugarland Express, and 1976's Drive-In. His TV appearances include The Rockford Files, Alice, and The Dukes of Hazard. His final acting credit was in 1992, and his IMDb profile gives a December 1940 date of birth, which would make him 81 today. With the pilot episode shot with an ensemble cast mostly handpicked by Polly Holiday, she commented, The key is the cast. Everybody that's in it has had years of stage experience, because we work in front of an audience, and you must have stage experience to do that. The response when we did our first show was just overwhelming. We got a standing ovation. Afterwards, all I heard was, what a fantastic cast. So, I figured I did my work. Forgotten TV will return in a moment. America, we're doing what we knew we could. Looking to the 80s, looking for excitement. Looking to the 80s, CBS, we're looking good. Looking to the 80s, looking for the laughter. Looking to the 80s, going like we should. Looking to 
Lowe's Yellow Rose itself was a modest roadhouse bar featuring not much more than a jukebox, pinball machine, cigarette vending machine, and a few tables. The decor featured mounted buffalo heads, framed pictures of cowboys on horses, an antique telephone, old maps and license plates on the walls. Behind the bar, there were mason jars on the shelves, an antique cash register, a YCHJCYAQFTJB sign. Your curiosity has just cost you a quarter for the jukebox for the curious. And a vintage movie poster for the 1939 John Wayne film, Three Texas Steers, Behind the Bar. The restrooms were designated by the signs Dudes and Darlins. The pinball machine was a 1975 Eldorado model made by Gottlieb. The Eldorado had a production run of 2,875 machines and was a very popular model being reissued as Gold Strike, Solar City, and Target Alpha over the years. The model remains a popular one for collectors and pinball restorers today. Lynn Griffin was the art director credited for the look of the flow sets. She also worked on Alice from 1978 to 1984 and several Miller Boyette productions including Valerie, Perfect Strangers, Full House, Step by Step, and Family Matters. But some set decoration was done by Polly Holiday herself, as she pointed out, speaking to a TV newspaper columnist over the 1980 summer hiatus. When Flo took over the bar, we decided that she'd put up some tablecloths and curtains, and the designer had built these very sort of elaborate drapes with tassels on them. They looked like they'd been done by a professional decorator. And I said, I thought they should be just something that Flo and her mother ran up with 10 cent store material. So what we did was make drapes that are simply gathered at the top and pulled back with a little string instead. That comes straight out of the character. As far as where the Yellow Rose was located, while there is no official city in Texas called Cowtown, that nickname has often been historically applied to Fort Worth, Texas. Established in 1849 and named to honor General Williams Jenkins Worth, Camp Worth began as an army outpost on the north-facing bluff overlooking the clear fork of the Trinity River. Before that, it was a primitive trading post used by traders and trappers near what was the negotiated border between the various Native American tribes and the white man. Originally a camp in a live oak grove near that Trinity Fork pitched in the chilly November of 1843, Additional trading posts and residential houses were raised in the wake of an 1844 Congressional Act, granting acreage to white settlers meeting certain conditions. This border was ever encroached upon by the incoming settlers, and a reminder of this legacy exists to this day, as the city of White Settlement, Texas still sits in the modern Fort Worth metro approximately eight miles into the previously agreed-upon Indian Territory. 
Campworth was officially given the title of fort in November 1849 and was one of eight forts built for the purpose of protecting Texas settlers from the possibility of Native American attacks along this frontier. Although the fort itself was abandoned in 1853, the unused buildings were taken over and clinics, schools, stores, and hotels were erected around them. In the 1860s and 70s, as millions of Longhorns were driven through on the way to Red River Crossing at the old Chisholm Trail, Fort Worth became the king of the cattle industry. The arrival of the Texas and Pacific Railway transformed downtown into a livestock mecca, cementing the city's name of Cowtown, and word of the seemingly limitless opportunities to be had there spread across the country. During this late 19th century era, gambling parlors, saloons, and body houses of ill repute sprang up in a downtown area that became a red light district, derisively labeled Hell's Half Acre. All manner of vice could be found in the acre, a regular stop for Bat Masterson, Doc Holliday, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as well as the Earp Brothers. James Earp and his wife even had a house one block from the Acre's border. But if you entered the Acre, you were looking for trouble. Or perhaps just a good time. The gin joints were many, but it was a far cry from the quality you'd expect from a bar in later decades. Aside from the rot-gut whiskey or warm beer, you might be served a knockout drink if you were foolish enough to enter a saloon flashing your cash. Backroom card games were often rigged, and just-paid cowboys would often lose their bankroll to the card sharks, likely playing pharaoh or monte instead of poker. If a man was looking for company, he could find it. A parlor house would be where you could find the best amenities available at the time, along with visiting your higher-tiered companion in a well-appointed bedroom. A less luxurious brothel or boarding house would be for those looking for a less expensive time. And on the low end, there were the cribs, where you would briefly rent one of the one-room shacks that lined the street for your nightly dalliance. Your companion in a crib might be one considered less attractive, older, or might suffer from one of the dreaded social diseases. Drinking, carousing, and brawling even spilled out into the streets of the Acre, and lawman Marshall Courtright would sometimes arrest 30 lawbreakers in a single night. The Acre thrived for about 50 years, and several attempts to clean up the area were made over the decades. But it was the arrival of World War I and Camp Bowie that finally put an end to its reign. The military training camp was established about three miles west of downtown, and the War Department declared that no vice district would exist within five miles of a military encampment. Raids, mass arrests, and even demolition of buildings took place, putting the area under de facto martial law. By 1920, Hell's Half Acre was no more. Downtown Fort Worth became home to the Southwestern Exposition and Fat Stock Show, originally held under shade trees on Marine Creek. By the time cowboy events were added in 1918, marketed under the Spanish word rodeo, the event had moved indoors to what is now Cowtown Coliseum, and the Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo is known as the oldest continuing-running livestock show. An early 20th century oil boom drove even further population and development to the area. 
Now the 13th largest city in the United States, Fort Worth has earned its Cowtown moniker, and countless businesses and events there incorporate the Cowtown name. The rowdy and dusty history of this area serves as the backdrop for the never-specified location of the relatively tame Flo's Yellow Rose, although a clue might be provided by the highway sign for U.S. Route 81 on the door to the bar. U.S. Route 81 is a major 1,220-mile-long north-south highway that extends from the Canadian border in North Dakota and, in 1980, passed through Fort Worth and extended all the way to the Mexican border in Laredo, Texas. In 1993, the highway was shortened to now terminate at an intersection with Interstate 35 about 10 miles north of downtown Fort Worth. While the painted backdrops of rural landscapes on the sound stages of flow reveal the Yellow Rose and the nearby Castleberry House certainly wouldn't have been located in 1980 downtown Fort Worth. It's reasonable to assume it was on or near Old US-81, either north or south of the city proper. Dialogue in several episodes referred to the Yellow Rose being located in Tarrant County, as well as somewhat near the fictional Lake Crosby, and we also know that it would be within a reasonable driving distance of Earl Tucker's ranch. Tarrant County has numerous bodies of water, both natural and artificial, large and small, that could stand in for the fictional lake. Although Flo aired in 1980, it benefited from and integrated tropes from 1970s CB and trucker culture. Flo's Yellow Rose was frequented by cowboys, oilmen, and truckers. Flo also used the CB radio several times in the series. Her CB handle was Hot Cargo, and her familiarity with CB lingo and the trucker world was part of the backdrop of the series and character. Breaker 1-9, Breaker 1-9, this here is Hot Cargo. Come on in. For someone not around at the time, the influence and ubiquity of CB radios and the trucker lifestyle in this era is hard to overstate. Although citizens' band radios had been around since 1945, it was the oil crisis of 1973 and the implementation of the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit that began to drive the adoption of CB radios to the mainstream. Previously used mainly by truckers, tow truck drivers, and other trade professionals that would drive a truck or van, now the general public was installing them in the family sedan. A CB radio typically had a control unit mounted under the dash connected to your 12-volt power, with a handheld microphone attached with a coiled wire. The wattage of your unit as well as its antenna would determine how far you could transmit, but most units would have a range of 20 miles or less. One primary use for CBs was in finding out where highway speed traps were located, allowing the common man along with the trucker to speed between them. There was thus an outlaw mystique built up around CBs, but to be fair, there were certainly other uses. CBs were used to relay the price of gas, or what service stations even had gas, during this era of gas lines and rationing. CBs were also a way to obtain emergency assistance, or even just general help in navigating an unfamiliar area. Legally, you were supposed to purchase an FCC license to transmit on a CB, using actual call letters. 
but this was ignored by the majority of new users, and handles, or fake names, were almost always used to identify yourself on the CB. In addition to handles and official TIN codes, an entire language of slang sprung up over the air. Some enthusiast websites list over 800 CB terms and phrases. CB units were also supposed to have a power limitation, but some home users would exceed this, causing irritated neighbors with the TV reception interference this could cause. Yes, even homebound users could set up a CB base station, and everyone from truckers' wives to home hobbyists to young boys and girls were communicating with strangers over the radio. Famous voice actor Mel Blanc was a CB enthusiast, using the handle Bugs or Daffy, based on the famous characters he voiced. Johnny Cash was known to chat with fans over the CB. Perhaps epitomizing the craze, a CB base station was installed in the White House in the summer of 1976, and First Lady Betty Ford was known to transmit using the handle First Mama. In many ways, the CB craze foreshadowed the rise of online chat rooms and message boards two decades later. On television, Sonny and Frank both romanticized the itinerant trucker life and promoted the use of CB radios on 1974's Moving On. Wow! 15 forward speed, citizen band radio, turbocharger, air conditioning, I'm gonna get me one of these. Moving On lasted two seasons and even spawned a toy line, which included model kits, die-cast trucks, and at least two CB-style toys. But probably the biggest single factor in driving the popularity of CBs and trucker culture was the 1975 song, Convoy. Performed by Bill Freeze under the stage name C.W. McCall, Convoy spent six weeks at number one on the country charts, and even a week on the pop charts in the U.S. The song related a narrative of a small convoy, a line of trucks traveling together for mutual support and protection, of 18-wheel trucks traveling together and speeding from the west to east coasts of the U.S. in protest of the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit mandated log sheets to record driving hours, DOT way stations, and toll roads. By the end of the song, even 11 long-haired friends of Jesus in a chartreuse microbus had joined along. In the wake of Convoy, there was an explosion of CB and trucker-related merchandise. Radio Shack began to advertise CBs on TV commercials, now aimed at regular consumers. C.W. McCall himself endorsed a Midland CB radio package for $139.95. Every kid knew the trucker honk horn arm pump. There were CB and trucker-related magazines, board games, t-shirts, ball caps, model kits, and toys. For preschoolers, Kusan released the Lil' Buddy Talkin' CB Toy featuring four different buddies that would pop up when the correct channel was selected. 
Mego released the CB McCall toy line, toy semi-trucks with scaled action figures that came with handheld microphones you could plug into the rig and amplify your voice. ABC's SWAT had a licensed toy CB radio van. One year, I even recall receiving a yapper for my bike, a toy that had the form factor of a CB radio and could actually receive nearby CB transmissions but only transmit on a walkie-talkie frequency. It came with a dictionary of CB lingo that could make you the coolest 10-year-old on the block. With the nation overwhelmed with CB fever, the FCC lowered the license fee to $4 and added 17 channels in 1977 for a total of 40, which continues to this day. And of course, a host of movies took advantage of the craze. White Line Fever in 1975, Breaker Breaker, The Great Smoky Roadblock, and Smokey and the Bandit in 1977. Not to mention Convoy, the Sam Peckinpah film that originated with the C.W. McCall song. It's 20 miles long and 20 feet wide with the power of 90,000 horses inside. It's a beautiful sight and a hell of a ride. It's a convoy. TV rode the public's interest in trucker culture, and we got shows like BJ and the Bear and the Dukes of Hazard, which carried over many of the southern outlaw sensibilities of these films, and where characters very frequently made use of their CBs. CBs even showed up on random TV shows of the era as plot devices. The Evans on Good Times had a CB in the house and Buddy on Family started a relationship with a stranger over the CB. Thus, it was not unusual for Flo to depict the yellow rose with having a CB radio on hand behind the bar. Let's complete our look at the behind-the-scenes production and eventual cancellation of the Flo series. Following a phenomenally successful six-episode run in March and April of 1980 as the number one new show of the 1979-1980 season, CBS would have been crazy to not bring the show back in the fall. But recall Flo had a little help, being slotted on Monday nights in between M.A.S.H. and Lou Grant. Then in its eighth season, M.A.S.H. was still performing extremely strong in the ratings interestingly tying with Alice as the number four show of the season. Following MASH was a cushy slot. After all, viewers were basically locked into CBS for the evening. Their other choices were to turn to NBC or ABC and watch whatever Monday night movie was being aired, already half an hour in progress. The show was, of course, renewed, and a full season was ordered. Initially, all seemed well behind the scenes of show production. The writers and producers generally got along and maintained a good relationship with Holiday, who was evidently allowed a great deal of deference when it came to creative control over the series, as commented on by E.P. Jim Mulligan at the August 1980 press junket. This show truly is a creation of Polly's, in the sense that the character and actor become one. Polly has done reams of notes on the history of Flo Castleberry that enabled her as an actor to make certain choices when she was doing a scene. Polly knows certain things about what Flo would do under certain circumstances. So in a very real sense, she becomes the executive producer as much as I, if not more. 
Her responsibilities are much greater than the average leads would be. However, over time, differences in styles and approaches to the writing, as well as the three layers of producers, in addition to Holiday herself, began to add significant complexity and time to the writing process. As a result, a lot of what made it into final scripts was watered down in order to please everyone. The phrase, too many cooks, comes to mind. This led to clicks in the writer's room, with the tantamount trio of Landry, Geiger, and Biner being self-identified conservative blue-collar types, while Isles and Stein were viewed as liberal coastal elites. This division even trickled down to where the teams chose to have lunch. Tantamount tended to write episodes containing broad, tropey, rural-style humor. The episode with the outrageous prospector Bull, the one where Flo, Roy, and Les get stuck at the ranch delivering a foal, the two-parter with the avocado scheme cooked up by truckers Roy and Tyler, and the season two opening stinker revolving around the family of skunks taking up residence underneath the bar, among others. One recurring bit they came up with was where Farley would badly mangle names of foreigners he was looking to have dealings with. The name of Generalissimo Raul Santiago de La Hoya. <laughs> Fellow named Kahuni Maki Loki Apu Aa or something. Like that. From a chic Ibn Ben Assad. <laughs> Fellow named Vito the Foot Ragu. Name a Akahito Shirasawa. <laughs> Due to network concerns that this humor could be seen as distasteful by viewers, this bit was dropped. Eilsenstein tended to contribute more thoughtful character-driven material, exploring or expanding on characters such as the two episodes focusing on Sister Fran, the one that explored the background of piano player Les, and the Castleberry family Thanksgiving two-parter. However, Bob Isles recalled a turning point on the series when the smooth sailing was over, as he told Forgotten TV. I just remember when the explosion happened. It was a Saturday. At some point, I checked my messages. I don't believe cell phones existed at that time. And it was one of those emergencies. Polly hated the latest script. I forget the premise, but I kind of knew she would. Mulligan was pissed, and we'd have to rewrite it. The Weekend Massacre. Now it was war between Mulligan and Polly. Love fest over. Before long, we basically started living at the office over on the Warner Lot drugstore building. It was on the edge of the west entrance to the studio, and indeed used to be a drugstore. Saturday was added a couple of times. Then it became a permanent workday. Then Sundays, maybe half a day, at first. Soon, we were pretty much there every day, because of course, when scripts are in trouble or thrown out, it really screws up the schedule. Season 1 staff writer Rich Orloff recalls the writer's room to have been a miserable experience, as he told Forgotten TV. I was originally hired by Dick Clare and Jenna McMahon, and I adored them and their quirky comic sensibility. When they were fired, I wasn't happy with the direction the show took nor did I contribute much in the writer's room, so I felt like I was wasting my time there. Orloff's single-episode credit was the season one ender, The Reunion, where Flo is tempted to leave Cowtown and the bar behind for a life of travel with well-off old beau Charlie. 
He tells an unpleasant story behind the writing of this as well. After turning in my first draft of the reunion, it was rewritten, slowly and laboriously, for about two weeks, with me stuck in the writer's room as it happened, until there was literally nothing left of my original script. And I do mean literally. I remember when they cut the last punchline from my script. Then the producers showed the script to Polly, who hated it. So I was told to write a very different version of the story, and had one weekend to do it. I wrote a script which I didn't think was nearly as good as the original, but Polly loved it, and the script that was shot was very close to what I wrote. Orloff was mocked for his yellow and black Toyota, being called the Bumblebee Man. Rolling with the insult, he began to wear a black and yellow striped sweater to work. Orloff never took a staff writing position again, but went on to write episodes for other shows like Mama's Family and Too Close for Comfort. Finally deciding it just wasn't for him, he left television altogether to pursue his calling of being a playwright and has had numerous one-act and full-length plays produced over the last 30 years. Philip Harrison Hahn was another of the series writers credited with four episodes, the one with Hoyt Axton, the one where Flo gets tonsillitis and writes Kiss My Grits on the slate, the one where Mama runs away after being signed up for the ridiculous number of activities, and the one where Miriam is too busy caring for husband Hollis to take the trip to Disney World. If you look him up on IMDb, you'll see these as his only credits. However, that is because he was usually credited as Phil Hahn. He has written for Get Smart, Laugh-In, Sonny and Cher, Donnie and Marie, some of these working with Flow executive producer Jim Mulligan. Han died in 2019 at age 87. Writer John Bonney seems to have emerged unscathed from his time in the writer's room on Flow, offering this experience to author Bob Leschak. We writers heard all the rumblings of unhappiness on the set, but I must admit we had a great time writing for the show. If we had an idea, we pitched it. If it worked, we came up with the script. One might think that it would be difficult to write for a spinoff, but it really wasn't. Bonnie contributed Gunsmoke at the Yellow Rose, where Flo envisions the bar as it would be 100 years earlier, and the penultimate episode, No Men's Land, where it is discovered Buddy from the gas station owns the bar restrooms. Stephen A. Miller penned Showdown at the Yellow Rose, where Earl is forced to face Bad Joe Shaw, and Farley, the People's Choice, where Farley runs for zoning commissioner. Miller has written as well as produced Archie Bunker's Place, Airwolf, Simon and Simon, Magnum P.I., Flipper, and Nightman. Nerves in the writer's room were soothed daily with a five o'clock shot of Chivas Regal Scotch and Water, a ceremony everyone participated in, regardless of which writing pack they belonged to. However, this daily constitutional couldn't prevent the next challenge faced by the production, the actor strike of 1980. Season 1 ended its run on April 28th, and work immediately began on the Season 2 order. When production was scheduled to resume in early July, it was first delayed by Jeffrey Lewis finishing up the film Any Which Way You Can, shooting early that summer. But soon after he returned to the flow set, the nearly 70,000 members of the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists went on strike on July 21st, 
shutting down production on Flow and other primetime TV shows and movies for just over three months. This resulted in many shows not returning until November, December, or January, depending on the complexity of production. Viewers of one-hour scripted shows like Dallas had to wait about six weeks longer to find out who shot J.R., while sitcoms produced on sound stages in front of an audience could spring back into production much faster. Many series also had truncated seasons as a result of the delayed start. New shows like Dynasty, The Brady Brides, Harper Valley PTA, and Aloha Paradise were pushed to January or later, while some were pushed to the following season or were scrapped altogether. Networks relied on a patchwork of programming to get by until the new shows returned. Easily produced fare like Speak Up America, Games People Play, and Those Amazing Animals, as well as Unsold Pilots, were used to fill gaps in programming. NBC was in a better position than the other two networks with 11 hours of regular series programming in addition to the 12-hour miniseries Shogun already produced. Thus, a few series did return almost on time in the fall, including Little House on the Prairie, Lou Grant, Chips, and Quincy. You might find an online account on several websites that Michael Landon had negotiated a special deal between NBC and the striking unions to remain in production. This simply isn't true. Little House actors indeed walked the picket lines during the strike. Little House and the other shows mentioned had completed filming of episodes prior to the strike and had several in the can for the start of the fall season. Flow returned to the air in the fall of 1980 on October 27th, three days following the conclusion of the strike with an already produced episode. It was followed by the series premiere of the Lawrence Pressman sitcom Ladies' Man. These were the very first sitcoms from any of the networks to air new episodes that fall. Another issue faced behind the scenes, at least from the viewpoint of several cast members, was the level of involvement and control star Polly Holiday held over the production, leading to friction between some of the actors and one cast member leaving the show. Writer Bob Leschak spoke to two of them for his chapter on flow in his 2016 book, Single Season Sitcoms of the 1980s. Lucy Lee Flippin commented regarding the issues from her perspective. The program had two problems. The wonderful character of Flo was overused in the series. She was in almost every scene, as opposed to her brilliant showings in Alice. Also, Polly and Sudie Bond, who played Mama, did not get along, so domestic scenes were few compared to those in the bar locale. There was ongoing tension with Polly and Sudi. Additionally, there were too many main characters. Recall from our episode rundown that co-star Joyce Boulafont started being credited as guest star around the halfway point of season two and then disappeared from the show altogether following the story revelation that Miriam was pregnant and would be leaving her job at the bar. In her conversation with Bob Leschak, Boulafont finally revealed the story behind her departure from the show. I asked to leave the show because Polly had creative control. I feel it is dangerous for leading actors to have control of a show. It is difficult when the star has control to be objective. 
After one show, a story that revolved around me, she asked the writers not to write any more storylines for me. That was all right, except that Polly seemed to not be pleased with me. She was quite a taskmaster and wanted the show to run just as she wanted it to. Producer Bob Isles put it this way, Polly Holiday was a fabulous actress, a great character, but above all, a perfectionist. She did have a great deal of input, and that started to wear thin with executive producer Mulligan. While Holiday's perfectionism and amount of influence over the production reportedly was the source of some backstage irritation, her talent and abilities were also praised. Lucy Lee Flippin. She was wound a little tight, but it was her show. She was very gracious to me after a Little House on the Prairie episode I did and sent an amazing telegram. Series makeup artist Fred Williams had this to say about Holiday. She had a wonderful sense of humor, was sensitive, and took each person's problems to heart. Stephen Keep Mills told Forgotten TV, Polly was a wonderful leader and practically a masterclass in comedy every time she was on camera. The main director, Mark Daniels, brought all the genius he had polished working on I Love Lucy, and the writers, Bob Isles chief among them, would somehow manage to come up with quirky, original, and entirely playable stories for us each week. We quickly became an organism, and we wove our work together. I never felt any negative competition or had the notion anyone among us was difficult. Regardless of whatever production problems existed, the success of Flow was also impacted by a combination of external factors. First, CBS moving it to 8, 7 Central as the lead-in series for Monday night meant viewers would now be tuning in specifically to watch Flow instead of the show benefiting by a MASH lead-in audience, as it had been for those incredibly highly rated initial episodes. Second, the production delay caused by the actor's strike meant viewers already had a month to form their Monday night viewing habits for the time slot, watching new episodes of That's Incredible or Little House on the Prairie, both of which were able to air new episodes when the season began. Viewers that did tune in for the first Flow episode after the summer break were greeted with one of the worst storylines offered in the entire series. In nearly a carbon copy of what happened to ABC sitcom Angie, the time slot move, followed by a move to Saturday, resulted in even worse ratings and cemented the series' fate. As Holiday remarked after cancellation, they switched us to Saturday, and we were against Love Boat. People love Love Boat. I talked to my mother's friends back in Alabama, and they said, I sure wish they'd move Flo. I can't miss my Love Boat. But if my mother's friends didn't watch Flo, we didn't have much chance, did we? The cast and crew of Flo held their season-ending rap party at the Toluca Lake Tennis Club in early April, just before CBS took the show off the regular schedule. Weeks later, announcing their fall 1981 schedule, CBS made it official, as Flow was included in the also-dropped series, along with Dukes of Hazzard spinoff, Enos. TV columnist Lee Grant was able to give readers a peek at what happens after a TV show is canceled in an article on Flow that was carried in the nationwide press, allowing me to share the quotes and details presented in this segment. 
When word of the cancellation came down, Polly Holiday had to have been hit harder than anyone. We knew it was coming. Once it becomes official, you feel it. I hated saying goodbye to Flo. She was a good character, like a sister. I hated to let her go. Actress Sudi Bond added, If you're an actor, you're always ready to pick up and move on again. But there is still the sad feeling when something like this ends. For a year, it was our place of work, a place to go. When actors perform together, they form a family. It gets very close. You hate to lose that feeling. Jim B. Baker commented on the vacant feeling the show cancellation left him with. It comes from knowing you won't be with those you've had such good times with. We began to love each other. But the cast had to part ways. The day following the announcement, the reserved parking spaces for the cast were all empty. The secretaries in suites 26 and 27 of the Burbank Studios North Administration Building were busy packing up crates and tossing piles of flow scripts into trash cans. Boxed up video cassettes of flow episodes headed to the Warner Television Morgue. The phone would ring with the caller asking if Jim Mulligan or one of the other producers were there. No, they're not. They don't work here anymore. Stage 9 still had Polly Holiday starring as Flo on the marquee, but inside it was deserted and the empty soundstage sets still in place, waiting to be struck. Associate producer Doug West, one of the few people still present in the offices, soon had a studio employee come in and take his typewriter and office chair, and he matter-of-factly acknowledged the transitory nature of TV work. Shows don't last 10 years. Only the rare mash does. It's a seasonal business. Director Bob Lahendro commented, You hate to see the closeness come to an end. A lot of people gave a big part of themselves to make Flo a good show. In this business, there just isn't that long-term security. You realize no show lasts forever. Nobody on Flo feels they failed. If you do your best, you have to be happy. Makeup man Fred Williams offered probably the most pragmatic parting thought. Everybody was saying goodbye and we'll keep in touch. They meant well, but eventually it all fades. Everybody goes in different directions. True to her word, following Flo, Polly Holiday never returned to Alice or the Flo character. Alice finished out nine seasons and its finale was aired in March 1985. The storyline ends when Mel decides to sell the diner. Alice moves to Nashville to be a singer. Vera leaves to have a baby with husband Elliot. And Jolene leaves to open a beauty parlor. A rapid-fire memory montage was shown, with Flo being shown in three of the memory clips. And the character of Flo then existed only in Alice reruns. Polly Holiday kept busy showing up in cameo roles in various films. Who can forget her role as the heartless Mrs. Deagle, who got her comeuppance at the hands of the Gremlins in 1984? As next-door busybody Mrs. Cheney in Mrs. Doubtfire. Unfortunately, much of her character ended up in the deleted scenes. Gloria, why don't you go get your mini cam so you can come in for a real tight shot, okay, dear? 
I'm concerned for Mrs. Hillard's well-being. I've read about people like you. You're a demented man. You're potentially dangerous. She also showed up in Moon Over Parador, Mr. Wrong, and The Parent Trap, among other films. On television, she agreed to film a pilot for CBS in 1985, an ill-advised TV adaptation of the 1980 hit film Stir Crazy. When the show was picked up for series, she managed to opt out of continuing with the show, and her character of Captain Betty was recast with Jeannie Wilson, fresh off of Street Hawk. Holiday returned to TV in 1995 in The Client, an adaptation of the 1994 film as Mama Love, mother to Joe Beth Williams' version of the Reggie Love character. Flow alumni Sharon Spellman and Stephen Keep Mills were also given parts on the series, courtesy of Holiday. This series is unfortunately impossible to find outside of the feature-length pilot included as an extra on the 1994 film's Blu-ray release. The 1990s also saw Holiday appear in a recurring role on the popular Home Improvement as Tim Taylor's mother-in-law, Lillian. Her final role was in the 2010 spy thriller, Fair Game. Now 84, she has been quietly retired from acting and public appearances for over a decade, living a private life in New York City. Following their departure from the Flow production, Dick Clare and Jenna McMahon joined the writing crew of ABC's Soap for its fourth season, as well as providing the original story for the ABC sitcom It's a Living. Their recurring Carol Burnett Show skit was revived, first as a full-length Eunice TV movie for CBS in 1982, then adapted into an NBC series in 1983, when Mama's Family hit the air. Both It's a Living and Mama's Family were canceled by their original networks, but found new life in first-run syndication, with both series eventually running for six seasons. Dick Clare's life was tragically cut short in 1988, dying from AIDS-related complications at age 57. Following Clare's death, Jenna McMahon produced the brief sitcom Julie with Julie Andrews in 1992 before retiring from television. Jenna McMahon died in 2015 at age 89. The Tantamount Trio found work following Flo, Ron Landry and Tom Biner went to work on sitcoms At Ease, Give Me a Break, and Benson. George Geiger continued working in television for another two and a half decades, writing and producing shows like Simon and Simon, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Tales of the Gold Monkey, Profiler, Earth Final Conflict, and Beastmaster. Ron Landry died in 2002 at 67, and Geiger and Biner are now retired. Bob Isles and James Stein next worked on Private Benjamin, Double Trouble, Silver Spoons, Amen, and talk show spoof Nightstand with comedian Timothy Stack. Stein continued working with Stack, co-creating the FX series Son of the Beach, and in the 2000s produced Growing Up Gotti and Project Runway. The 72-year-old is reportedly attached to an animated project, again working with Timothy Stack, so stay tuned. After running sitcoms Silver Spoons and Amen, Isles again worked with Sherman Hemsley on Good Behavior in the late 90s and wrote episodes of NBC's Saturday morning sitcom 
City Guys. Isles has also written four books, two of which have been published and can be found on Amazon. He continues work on his autobiography, which you have heard quotes from in this podcast. Although Polly Holiday, Stephen Keep Mills, Lucy Lee Flippin, Joyce Boulafont, and Linda Lavin are still with us, quite a number of the actors on Flo and Alice have passed away. As mentioned earlier, Jeffrey Lewis, Jim Baker, Leo Burmester, Sudi Bond, as well as Mickey Jones and George Flower have died. In 1990, Vic Tabak left us at age 60. He had been appearing on TV and film for nearly two decades prior to his role of Mel on Alice. Some of his classic appearances included The Lieutenant, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, and Gunsmoke. Following Alice, he sailed on the love boat several times, in addition to a handful of TV episodes and films, working up to the end, dying unexpectedly from a heart attack. In the years following Alice, Beth Howland took only bit parts on TV episodes and, after the turn of the millennium, disappeared from acting altogether. On New Year's Eve 2015, she quietly passed away from lung cancer at age 74, although this was not announced to the public until the following May, in accordance with her wishes. And the most surprising of all, in December 2019, I was shocked and incredibly saddened to learn of the passing of Philip McKeon. Along with the rest of America, I watched him grow up in Alice, more than once counting the reruns, but had completely lost track of him for decades. While his sister Nancy McKeon continued acting post-Facts of Life success, Phil acted less and less, and mostly in late 80s, early 90s horror films. He tried his hand behind the scenes as an assistant director and co-producer on several films in the 90s, but he found success in the world of radio, working at L.A. station KFWB for a decade. Around 2013, McKeon traded life in L.A. for the cowboy life outside Wimberley, Texas, but couldn't stay away from radio for long. He soon was working at Wimberley Station KWVH as part of the Breakfast Taco morning crew. Not long after the death of his father and sister Nancy wishing him a happy 55th birthday, a family spokesman announced that Philip had died after having been sick for quite some time with an unspecified illness. We are all beyond heartbroken and devastated over Phil's passing. His wonderful sense of humor kindness and loyalty will be remembered by all who crossed his path in life. With only 29 half-hour episodes, the Flow series fell far short of the number studios normally require to pursue rerun syndication. And I find no evidence it was ever rerun. In 2012, Warner Archive began releasing seasons of Alice on DVD, showing episodes in their original broadcast length for the first time since network airings. After releasing the fourth season in October 2013, it was appropriately followed by the release of Flow the following month. At the time of this recording, it is still available on DVD, and Flow can also be found on demand on Apple TV, Amazon Video, Google Play, and Vudu. As the 1980s progressed, interest in CB, trucker, and Southern culture as a cultural fad began to wane. Like Flo, B.J. and the Bear and Sheriff Lobo were just as short-lived. After seven seasons, the Dukes of Hazard went off the air in early 1985. 
After years of decline and following a bankruptcy, Gillies even closed down at the end of the decade. But Polly Holiday's iconic character of Flo has survived in pop culture over the decades. When Hurricane Florence threatened North Carolina in 2018, more than one area resident spray-painted a particular phrase on the plywood of their boarded-up homes and businesses in defiance of the storm. Kiss my grits. In the wake of Flo's cancellation, Jim B. Baker had remarked, Oh, hell. Fifty years from now, nobody will know the difference anyway. Well, I don't know about fifty years, Jim, but it's been forty-one, and we know the difference. Fans of Alice and Flo can still be found worldwide. Around ten Facebook pages and groups count some 100,000 fans between them. YouTube clips of Alice and Flo get hundreds of thousands of views and hundreds of comments each. Writers like Barry Putt and Bob Leschak still write about them. And now you who have listened also know the difference. For a closing thought, before you drift asleep on your cot, who other than Stephen Keep Mills, channeling the philosophical Les Kincaid, should have the final word? We all committed, and we were a good band of players. I wish our life together had been longer. I won't forget that sparkler of an adventure. It really was a Camelot, and had its one brief shining moment. Next time on Forgotten TV... On the next Forgotten TV, we revisit the one that started it all. Scott Creaseman was a 16-year-old movie theater worker, dreaming of a life in showbiz. But with only six episodes, CBS sitcom The Popcorn Kid came and went before most people knew it had arrived. Hear how Barry Kemp, a former life insurance salesman, went from Iowan City Theater to becoming a Hollywood success story, bringing us some of the best sitcoms of the 80s and 90s. Celebrate five years of Forgotten TV and the 35th anniversary of The Popcorn Kid with new behind-the-scenes material. The Popcorn Kid, special edition, coming in 30 days to Forgotten TV. Did you know you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and get your own special podcast feed? Exclusive content is found there, which includes Forgotten TV Supplemental, over 20 podcasts in addition to the one in the main feed, which include full-length interviews with TV creators, such as my incredible four-hour conversation with Tom Green, and my full conversation with the late Billy Henchy of Beach Boys and Dino Desi and Billy fame. Documentaries on classic sci-fi story The Outer Limit, ABC and the Still the One Era, and the untold real history of the video rental industry. Won't you join us over on Patreon? Link found right here in your podcast player. This episode was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Joshua Driscoll coming in with his generous support of the Flow podcast. With producers Julio Coppa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, K.L. Young, Kenny Siegel, Ralph Caracillo, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. 
Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by CBS, Warner Brothers, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. Flow is the copyright and property of Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Any audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2022 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests or quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of the additional audio clips possible. TV Hits, Topic, David Gideon, TV's Greatest, Warner Brothers, N16mm, The Rap Sheet, Johann Julius von Zeil, Retro Alexander, EWJXN, Memory Museum, Chuck D's All-New Classic TV Clubhouse, Channel 37, Johnny Zero, Video Detective, London Pinball, Alamo YTC Germany, Grindhouse Movie Trailers, Adult Swim. Break Time by Kevin McLeod is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. I've Fallen Down by Loving Caliber is used under license from Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound. Link in the show notes. Special thanks to Robert Isles, who provided a tremendous amount of background material on Flow and whom I cannot thank enough. Get that autobiography published, Bob. And thanks to the contributions and information provided by Rich Orloff, Stephen Keep Mills, Susie Glickman, Douglas West, Sharon Spellman, and Allison Arngram. A special call out to the research of David Barry Plunkett, who left us much too soon. Sources of quotes and background material not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. The books, Alice, Life Behind the Counter in Mel's Greasy Spoon by Barry M. Putt Jr. Single-season sitcoms of the 1980s by Bob Leschak. Articles at the following websites and periodicals. David Barry Plunkett's Alice sitcom blog. AliceHyatt.com. Yitzi Weiner's interview with Alan Shane. The Studio Tour. Advance Local Alabama. Southern Thing. Great Falls Tribune. Voyage LA Magazine. Directors Guild of America. Biker City Guide. The Denver Post. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Book Pleasures, Harvest Gold Memories, Pen Rescue, Fox News, The Weekly World News, and numerous period newspaper articles archived at newspapers.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. 
I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. The bar is always open and the beer is always cold. It flows. Yellow rose. <laughs> Save that, please. Who am I, Mark Daniels? Save it, please. Dr. Henry Heimlich, who per- Dr. Henry Heimlich, who pioneered the rem- the the removal. Dr. Hen- Dr. Henry Heimlich, who pioneered the maneuver, claimed to have. Dr. Henry Heimlich, who pioneered the... Dr. Henry Heimlich... <laughs> well, kiss my grits.